This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Crosstown Express Delivery Service. Crosstown Express will deliver literally anything, literally anywhere. You too will have people asking, what's in the box? Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, 1995's Seven and 2007's Zodiac. It's a David Fincher week. Yes. Totally unplanned. Mm-hmm. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Slash cards. Slash cards. Go ahead. A nefarious doctor uses his somnambulist servant to commit crimes in this 1920 German film. Somnambulist. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That is correct. Uh, my question is probably equally easy. It's also another movie that we've covered on the show. Mm-hmm. That is the theme to my two questions this week. And I'm not entirely sure I haven't asked this before, but there's a reason I'm asking it now. A lunatic harasses and kills girls in a sorority house during a Christmas party in this 1974 film. Black Christmas. Black Christmas is correct from 1974. The reason that this is important right now is that as of this recording, Margot Kidder died like two days ago or mm-hmm. something like that, which is a really big bummer. She was 69 years old and she obviously had some very public issues, but she was, a, a, by all accounts, a pretty incredible person and also, like, very active socially. Like, she was protesting shit before it was cool to do it as a celebrity. It's just a bummer that we found out that she recently passed away, and I figured we should talk about that ever so slightly on this show. So, uh, rest in peace to Margot Kidder. Yeah. Moving on from that fantastic news to a very bleak movie from 1995-7, written by Andrew Kevin Walker, directed by David Fincher, and starring Morgan Freeman, Brad Pitt, Kevin Spacey, and Gwyneth Paltrow. Kelsey, what's the premise of Seven and... A retiring cop and a new cop to the metropolitan area go after a serial killer who kills people based on the seven deadly sins. Kelsey Seven is available on Netflix. If you're already a subscriber, for free. So should people watch Seven? I would say absolutely yes. Now, normally we don't do movies quite as gruesome as Seven. So as long as you're okay with that, then absolutely see it. Right. I mean, th- because you brought it up, I'll bring it up here. But the killer doesn't actually ever kill anybody on screen. Right. 
you never actually see a murder done by the killer on screen. No, but you get to see the after effect. You, yeah, and there's some pretty gruesome stuff. The visuals in this movie are intense, but very, very good. Before we actually watch the movie, we should probably talk a little bit about David Fincher, because I'm going to have a lot to say once we start talking about the movie. I'm. This episode w- would go on forever um, if we don't, like keep the plot synopses down. So when it comes to that, we'll probably be breezing through that. But David Fincher is one of my favorite directors of all time. I absolutely love uh, every movie I've seen by him. And I have seen every movie he's done, except for The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. That movie just didn't strike me as interesting in any way whatsoever. I don't like it. Yeah. I think it's cheesy. I think it's dumb. I think it's boring. I, I don't it like the It doesn't seem characters. like a Fincher movie. It's yeah. bizarre because we'll read through his filmography and, and you'll get a look at it. But he did a lot, a lot, a lot of music videos, like a lot of music videos for Madonna and Billy Idol and Iggy Pop and Paul Abdul and George Michael and Michael Jackson and the Rolling Stones and Sting and Aerosmith. He did tons of music videos. That's really where he got his start. But the first movie he ever directed was Alien Cubed, <laughs> and he almost never directed a movie again. <laughs> It was Seven's script that was mailed to him that got him interested in making another movie. He had such a bad experience on Alien 3 that um, he dealt with a lot of studio interference in that movie and compromised a lot of his vision in order to get it made. Plus, uh, it's it's a thing you'll know if, if you watch his movies chronologically. He gets a lot better at the interesting stuff that he does early in his career as time goes on. And he goes from movies that aren't necessarily perfect but are incredibly interesting to movies that you might be able to describe as, like, as close to perfect as direction can get. So Alien, not a very good experience for him. He requested his name be taken off of the film, all the advertising and all of that stuff. He absolutely disowned that movie. So from there, he did Seven, The Game, Fight Club, which is one of Kelsey's favorite movies. Uh, It is her favorite movie. Thank you. Panic Room, Zodiac, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Gone Girl, and apparently it's been announced that he's going to be doing World War Z 2. I don't know why that would be the case, and I don't know how reliable that news is, but whatever. He also worked on several shows, like um, he's an executive producer on House of Cards. He got that started, and he actually directed the first two episodes. Uh, He also directed... Six episodes from the Mindhunter series, including a few from the second season, which is coming out pretty soon. And between it all, he continued to do music videos and commercials for Calvin Klein, Justin Timberlake, and Jay-Z. So, yeah, like Nine Inch Nails. So tons of stuff he's done. And he has a very, very particular style. Do you like David Fincher? Yeah. Well, he made my favorite movie of all time. (laughs) So there's that. We were talking about Fight Club and how Fight Club reminds me of Rick and Morty, where it's like 
a lot of the fan base give the actual movie slash TV show a really bad name because they don't actually understand what it's about. And about how, in my view at least, Fight Club is about toxic masculinity, among other things. It's about tons of things. But its big overarching theme is toxic masculinity and the divide between his normal self and what he thinks he should be. And too many people are all like, oh, that's what being a man is all about. That's what it should be. And that's why that movie's cool. And it's like, no, 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 you're completely missing the point. And the same thing with uh, Rick and Morty, how people idolize Rick. And it's like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) He's super, super smart. And it's gotten him nothing. He is miserable. Anyway. Uh, that's my assessment of two things that we're not going to be talking about today. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm sitting here just like, uh, okay. Listen, we're going to get through this uh, plot hopefully as fast as we can. So by Kelsey's estimation and you know what, by my own, uh, you should absolutely see Seven. Fantastic film. If you haven't seen it already, you should fix that. Uh, one of those movies. So go ahead and do that now. And when we get back, we will talk about 1995's Seven. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. You want to come take a look at this? Oh, good. It's two murders away from completing this masterpiece. Let's finish it. Brad Pitt. Morgan Freeman. This isn't going to have a happy ending. Seven rated R. All right, Kelsey. What happens in seven? So I'm going to take us through the beginning. Uh huh. In a little bit of detail. Um, because it gives us a lot of exposition that we need for our characters. Yeah. Then I'm going to run through the murders. Then I'm going to talk about the end in detail. Okay. Okay. So we start by meeting. Morgan Freeman, <laughs> and Morgan Freeman is a retiring cop, and we learn that from the very first scene. So, oh, unless you count the scene where he's getting ready to go out. So he walks into a homicide, a crime scene, and it's him and this other cop. And one of them calls it a crime of passion, and he says, oh yeah, just look at all the passion on the wall. And he notices that It's a married couple, and I think the woman killed the husband, and he notices that there's, like, kid drawings and kid stuff, and he's like, did the kid see it? And the other one is like, it's always these questions with you. Who who gives a shit if the kid saw it? This is our job, and then we're done for the day. Um, That's not our job. We're all going to be really glad to see you go. So that- You learned something about Somerset here. Tells us a lot about Somerset. So Somerset comes in and he immediately, like a detective, starts looking at all the things that he sees and puts them all together. But he's also a caring human being. Yeah, he, he, he cares about his job. That's why he's doing the job right. Even on something that seems so obvious- Because he cares about where he lives and he laments what has happened to the city, Mm -hmm. which has never, which is never named in the entire movie. They go out of their way not to name the movie, even though apparently, according to some survey, some 50 percent of people that you ask will say it takes place in New York City. But in actuality, they never actually say. True, true. So then in walks Brad Pitt and as 
Chris calls him he is the perfect specimen of a man. Yeah, absolutely. He is a pretty, pretty human being. He's on my list, ladies. <laughs> and it's funny because I mentioned that in Fight Club, I am not attracted to Brad Pitt. I am attracted to Edward Norton. And Chris and I had a full-blown <laughs> conversation about this. And I was like, well, I find him very attractive in this movie. And he asked me why, and I explained, hello, like what I said with Maniac Cop, wounded, grizzly, masculine detectives are my thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's normally attracted to... Pretty boys. She says that. But her definition of pretty is different, which <laughs> makes me wonder how I should feel about myself. I love you. She has Brad Pitt and Ed Norton. Brad Pitt, who literally in that movie personifies the perfect man. And Ed Norton, who's a fucking goober. I just say love Ed Norton. So do I. But how should I feel about myself, Kelsey? He's an extremely attractive man. I okay. don't know All right. what you're talking I'll, about. I'll take it. <laughs> okay. So we find out very quickly, like I said, Somerset. Morgan Freeman, he is going to leave and Brad Pitt is going to replace him. And so they get to talking and Morgan Freeman is like, why on earth would you fight to be reassigned to this place? And Brad Pitt's just like, I thought I could do some good. And Morgan Freeman very obviously is trying to shut Brad Pitt out. Probably because he doesn't think it's a good idea for Brad Pitt to be there. Right. Probably because he doesn't think anybody should be there. Especially someone who, as Brad Pitt put it, wants to do some good. Well, there's no good to be done in this city. He knows what's happened to him, right? Who wants to do good. He tries to, it's gotten to the point where he tries to shut the city out. We see him sleeping to a metronome. It's the order in that, that masks the chaos that allows him to actually go to sleep. So he can ignore the chaos that's happening outside in the city and focus on the order of the metronome. Mm -hmm. uh, that has some significance a little bit later on in the movie. But he knows what happened to himself who wanted to do good and cared about the city and cared about doing good. And he doesn't wish that on anybody. And so he tries to like harden himself to that and tries to be like, you don't want to be here, kid. Mm -hmm. Go back to wherever you came from. Exactly. And I don't want to work with you. Exactly. And Brad Pitt's just like, well, you're calling the shots. And Morgan Freeman goes, yeah. Like, yeah, I am. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he um, does later, too. Yeah. So then we get our amazing credit sequence. Fincher does really good credit sequences. And when Chris told me that he started with music videos, I was like, then that makes sense. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's used to using short frames. He's used to using imagery to get things across. Right. Mm -hmm. And he definitely does that with this. And we get... A lot of insight into our murderer. A lot of it won't be explained until later, but they do show you quite a bit. Yeah. He cuts off his fingerprints. It shows us how meticulous he is, how everything is just so and perfect, and that will come into play. But it's still dirty and grimy and Nasty. Chaotic. Yes. And this is all done to the song Closer by Nine Inch Nails. Yes, which t at this point he had not directed a music video for. Really? Yes. But, of course, the end line that they use in the opening credits is, you get me closer to God. 
Yes. So we know that this is going to be religiously motivated, especially since, of course, it's the seven deadly sins. Yes. Now I'm going to go through all seven murders. We start with gluttony. Gluttony. This is. I'm gonna. I'm gonna define these words, and then I'll give you a a quote from the Bible about the sin. All right. So gluttony. It's excess in eating and drinking. Like we all know what we all know what all these are. But definition: excess in eating and drinking. And from Proverbs twenty three twenty one: For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Hmm. So a giant man is seen. With his head in a big thing of spaghetti. And what we end up finding out is our killer put a gun to the man's head and forced him to eat until he died. And they tell us later that it couldn't have gone on for longer than 12 hours. Yeah, he was already a very large man. And we know that's why John Doe chose him. Yes. Because he was already gluttonous. So he picks people who are already committing the sin yeah. to an egregious amount. And then he kills them with the sin. And it's really disgusting. It's really disgusting. <laughs> yeah, uh, Mills, Brad Pitt, he nearly gags when he finds a bucket of vomit. There are cockroaches everywhere. Um, the place is a sty. It's gross. Second murder we see is greed. Excessive or reprehensible acquisitiveness. Acquiring things. Acquisition. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Ephesians 4.19. So in greed, uh, greed has been spelled in blood on the floor. We eventually see a picture of the man. Uh, He's been slumped over on the side. And we see a... Literal pound of flesh has been cut out of the man's side, which apparently John Doe forced him to do to himself. Yeah. Imagine it. There's a gun in your face. Which part of your body is expendable? About the love handle. Cut along the side of his own stomach. So the pound of flesh is a reference to Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, where the Jewish moneylender... Huh. Um, takes a pound of flesh from somebody he's lending money to to ensure repayment. Yeah, it's anti-Semitic, too, which fits right in with John Doe. So then uh, at the crime scene, they also notice that the wife, the picture of the wife of the man who was murdered, has red circles around her eyes, and it's pointed towards... A painting. Eventually, they find out that the painting is upside down, which causes them to move the painting. And then they find, with forensics, fingerprints that write, help me. And they are not John Doe's fingerprints. They are somebody else's fingerprints. That's actually how they find the next person, who they originally think is going to be the killer. Mm -hmm. Since we're talking about what they find at the scene, um, Somerset also gets given after... Uh, they go through the contents of the gluttony victim's stomach, pieces of plastic, and he goes back to the scene and he sees that they fit in these grooves in the floor where the refrigerator was moved. And that's when he moves the refrigerator, that's where they find the note that talks about the seven deadly sins. And that's how they, that's how he knows that there are going to be more and they're not going to stop until all seven have happened. So we get the, this, the name of this guy from the fingerprint analysis. 
they follow the lead and they meet, they find this guy. And so they think it is John Doe and they send in the SWAT team into the man's apartment. Yeah, they think it's John Doe because he has this rap sheet that's a mile long where he's done all of these awful things. He's how John Doe describes him a pederast, which is a specific pedophile that targets young boys. And he's an awful human being. So they think it might be John Doe and they're coming in guns blazing with the SWAT team and or ready to blaze, I guess. And they find instead a body in the bed, uh, this emaciated body that must have been starved forever. And all of these air fresheners hanging from the ceiling to mask the smell. As soon as they move the blanket, everyone's like, whoa, oh, mm-hmm. and one of the 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 head of the SWAT team gets down real close to the guy and is like, you deserved this. You got what you deserved. You got what you deserved because he's an awful human being. And all of a sudden, <coughs> he starts coughing. Now, this fucking terrified me the first time I saw it. It, it made was me jump insane. Yeah. Uh, he is still alive. He's been kept alive for a year to the day that they found him all planned by John Doe by giving him necessary fluids and that sort of thing, but starving him. How he could know that they would figure it out on that particular day is a little silly. So the, the writer has said that he wrote Somerset and Doe to be of equal intelligence. Doe, I think was planning on Somerset being the detective and he winged it at a few points during this process. We'll talk about that. Um, But especially when it comes to Mills, when he includes Mills in his plan. So. Sloth. Disinclined to activity or exertion, not energetic or vigorous. Quote, the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Proverbs 15, 19. And the reason he's called Sloth is because he is also a drug addict. Yeah. He'd rather lay around and do drugs than face life. Yeah. And that's exactly what John Doe gave him. Mm Mm-hmm. A bunch of drugs. Next up, Somerset decides that he is going to use an old trick of his, which isn't exactly legal. And he has a buddy that works for the FBI, and he gives him money to do a search of library records. Uh, For all these books that talk about the seven deadly sins, Dante's Inferno, and and stuff like that. And for years, the FBI has been up to the library system keeping records. Mm Mm-hmm. Assessing fines. Monitoring reading habits. Certain books are flagged. Books on, say, nuclear weapons or Mein Kampf. Anyone who checks out a flagged book has his library records fed into the FBI's computers from then on. Wait, wait, wait. How is this legal? You can't use the information directly. It's just a useful guide. See, it might sound silly, but you can't hit a library card without an ID in a current phone book. See? If you want to know who's reading Purgatory and Paradise Lost and Helter Skelter, the FBI's computers will tell us. Could give us a name. Could. Could get a name some college student writing a term paper on 20th century crime. At least you're out of the office. Now, it may sound a little bit conspiratorial about the library monitoring and, oh, isn't it convenient that the FBI happens to have this secret program where they can pull up this guy's name? And this is how they get his name, John Doe. But we know the government does this. 
Um, we found out the government does this uh, after 9-11. 9-11 happened and the Patriot Act passed and that legalized monitoring records like uh, library checkouts and things like that. So uh, that was a program that was already in effect and then the Patriot Act just basically made it legal. So it actually did happen. So it's not as conspiratorial as you may think. But they come up with this one guy, John Doe, they find out a lot about him. He moved to the city a couple years ago or something like that. Um, they found out where he lives. And when they go to question him, he shows up with some groceries. And he fires on them. And they give chase. And it's this whole great scene, this chase scene, that um not going to get really into it. But uh, it ends up with Mills getting injured and John Doe holding a gun to his head and deciding not to kill him. This, I think, is the moment where he decides to include Mills in his plans. Somerset shows up and John Doe gets away. And Somerset saves Mills instead of going after John Doe. And Mills ends up breaking down the door to the apartment because he is so angry. And Somerset's trying to convince him not to because this is going to ruin all of the evidence. And... Because uh, anything they re they find here would be inadmissible. And he just knocks down the door and is like, well, too late now. We might as well go inside. He ends up paying a homeless person to lie to a police officer on the scene and say that he heard screaming or what did she heard? She had seen the man acting creepy and going out at odd hours. It was just a bunch of bullshit. Right. Yeah. Um. And it's obviously it's bullshit and the cop there doesn't care. He just takes the the statement and then she signs it and then it's all done. Um, and this is where they find a lot of evidence in the room. And now his plans have been derailed and he needs to make a lot of different decisions here. Well, he says on the phone, it's not that big of it. I mean, who knows? You could just be saying this because he yeah. doesn't want to be found out but he says it's a slight inconvenience i've just had to move a little bit faster than right. i planned to i admire you i don't know how you found me but imagine my surprise i respect you law enforcement agents more every day well i appreciate that john i tell you no no you listen all right i'll be readjusting my schedule in light of today's little setback i just had to call and express my admiration sorry i had to hurt one of you, but I didn't really have a choice, did I? Mm. You will accept my apology, won't you? I feel like saying more, but I don't want to ruin the surprise. And in the apartment, they find a receipt for a bondage store. And so they go there and they find out this guy made this strap-on for John Doe with a giant sword and blade instead of a phallus of some sort. So the next murder that happens is... Lust. Lust. An intense desire or need, quote, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5, 28. So our detectives get called to a, what do you want to call it? A sex club? It's not really a club. A sex dungeon? No, there's a club and then downstairs there are the it's rooms. It's like a hotel can... where people have okay. sex, isn't it? I don't know. I guess I could be wrong. I, I don't know. It's kind of both. It doesn't really explain what it is. Whatever. It's a place where people have sex, okay? So, they get called in, and we don't really see it. We just see 
a picture of the device. We also see when they show up that there's um, a sheet draped over it and the man is still wearing it while he's freaking out. Yeah. And you can see it's poking up as he's still wearing it. And it's. It, but this is the one murder that they don't. No, it's. Show I, us exactly right. what You're happened. right. But just the thought yeah, in your the head thought is, enough. is gruesome. Yeah. So essentially, John Doe. Again, put a gun to a man's head and forced him to have sex with a prostitute with the blade. Yeah. Yeah, so needless to say, she did not survive. The guy did, and he is going to be fucked beyond repair. Like, that's, it's awful. It was a punishment for the two of them. Next. The next murder is pride. Inordinate self-esteem. Quote, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. A woman is found with her nose cut off, and both of her hands have something glued to them. One has a phone, so she could call 911 and mm. be rescued and saved. And then the other hand is a bottle of sleeping pills. So she could choose to kill herself, or she could choose to call the police. And proving Doe's point, she chooses to kill herself. Rather than live disfigured. Right. That's the pride he's talking about. Mm -hmm. So, that gets us through gluttony, greed, sloth, lust, and pride. That's the... Middle of the movie right there. There are two sins left. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the end of the movie, Kels. So John Doe ends up turning himself in. Detective! Detective. After this, I'm Detective. Gone. No big surprise. Detective! He says there are two more bodies, and I will hand them over, but only if Mills and Somerset Take me there by themselves. Yes. If you do not, I will not sign a confession and you will never find the other two bodies. Basically, Mills convinces Somerset to go along because this will end it. And that was Somerset's problem throughout the whole movie is this is just going to go on until all these murders are done. And he doesn't like having open cases on his record or his conscience. And he, he makes a point of saying that every case that did not close was carried as far to completion as could possibly be done. And so he Mills preys on that part of Somerset and is like, let's end this. And so they agree. They'll get a confession out of him and he'll sign it. He signs it before they leave, actually. But there's a lawyer there who ensures that it would be inadmissible if they don't follow through on their end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. And they take him out. To the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a fun, fun? Ugh. There's a conversation that they have on the drive out there, and they have no idea where they're going, and he's giving them directions, and he's obviously getting to Mills. Mills is a very passionate human being, and Somerset is not. <laughs> he's had all the passion drained from him through this life that he's led. Um we know that he had a past relationship and that he was in love with this person. He almost married this person. Uh, and because he knew that the city was an awful place for anyone to live, he convinced her to have an abortion when she got pregnant and she left him and he never got close to marriage ever again. 
he never really ever met anybody else. And that's that's like this progression of him hardening himself. It's also very important to note. I mean, it's it's very obvious from the get go that Brad Pitt is a snappy, fast acting, emotional man, whereas Morgan Freeman is a much more detached, much more thoughtful type of person. Yes. But aside from that, we also know that Brad Pitt does not take John Doe seriously. Yeah. He thinks he's a crazy killer who... Is a pathetic human being. Yes. And John Doe is very prideful himself. And uh, Morgan Freeman, on the other hand, says, you're not looking at all of the facts here. This man is very, like I said earlier, meticulous, careful... He wouldn't get he wouldn't turn himself in unless this was part of his plan. Right. Everything is part of his plan and you're forgetting the fact that this is a very intelligent person. Yeah. He everything he does is backed up through like research and literature and it's always literature about the Bible and about uh good and evil and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, you you really shouldn't disrespect someone like this because if you do you're gonna miss things yeah so john doe in the back he's doing this whole long-winded speech talking about how amazing he is and how it will confound people and people will turn back to god and let's let's talk about it for one sentence john doe is played by kevin spacey in an amazing performance, but that doesn't negate the fact that Kevin Spacey is an awful human being. That's the end of the sentence. And Brad Pitt says very disparaging remarks, and he interrupts John Doe. And John Doe, you can tell that he starts to get irked. He doesn't yeah. like it when people don't listen to him. Uh-huh. He doesn't like it when people don't think he's well, right. Well, the whole reason he's doing this is to be heard. Exactly. He says that. And so he says... I can't wait for you to see it. I really can't. And Brad Pitt's not listening. Yeah. Brad Pitt is not paying attention to what this man is telling him. Somerset is really worried because he hears this and he's like, he keeps looking this is at be John worse Doe than we think. In the in the mirror view mirror and you can tell that Morgan Freeman is getting nervous. Yeah. Brad Pitt is getting riled up. Yeah. John Doe explains, you know, I was chosen for this. Um there's no way you could con- consider those people that I killed to be innocent. Um, they're all awful human beings. And the fact that you think they're innocent tells you what kind of a society we now live in. Yeah. We live in a society where we tolerate this kind of behavior. Yeah. And then he says, I want you to remember, to Brad Pitt's character, I spared you. I allowed you to have every breath that you have mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Alive because I didn't kill you. Okay, sit back. I spared you. Sit back. Remember that, detective, every time you look in the mirror at that face of yours for the rest of your life. Or should I say, for the rest of what life? Sit I've back. you to have. Sit back, you fucking freak. Shut your fucking mouth. And that's going to come to be really important later. So they get out to the middle of the desert. There are helicopters flying by around with snipers in them, but they can't get close and they can't land because it's in the middle of all these power lines. And John Doe knows that. If they land, they'll have to land somewhere really far away and it'll take them forever to get there. So instead, they keep an eye on everything. 
and they have to do everything from the air. And that's when a van shows up because this is all perfectly timed. He requested that they go out there at 7 a.m. 7 a.m. And um, that's when this van shows up and Somerset goes out to meet the van. And it's a delivery guy who's taking on a, a side job to deliver this box um, for John Doe out to this address, which is like a trailer on a corner of a dirt road and uh, be there at exactly seven. It's like two minutes after or something like that. One of the flaws in John Doe's plan. And Somerset sends him away, sends him off running on foot and on, on the radio tells the cops to pick him up. And he's struggling. Mills is still with John Doe far away. And John Doe is antagonizing him. He's antagonizing Mills, yeah. And and Somerset's trying to decide, oh, God, do I open it? We got a box. Yeah, we got a box. Call in the bomb squad. We got a box. <laughs> do, do I open it? And at one point, he, at, the, at this point, he's like, fuck it, I'm opening it. And he takes out the knife that he always has with him. And he cuts open the box. Meanwhile, John Doe is talking about how he envies Mills and his perfect life. And Mills is like, shut up. You don't know me. Don't talk about me. And he gets more and more detailed. And he he ends up saying that when you were away, I broke into your apartment through the window and... I tried to sleep next to your wife and she wasn't having any of that. It didn't work. I can't live your life. And I am envious of that. And that is my sin. And that's when we open the box and Somerset's like, ah, 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 you know, and and he runs. And he's like, he, he says that line that John Doe has the upper hand here. And he, and he runs back to where Doe and Mills are located. And... He's like, put the gun down, put the gun down. And this is one of the moments where we get the handheld shot. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And it's all shaking around as it follows Somerset and tracks Mills. And while Mills is trying to communicate with Somerset over a long distance and trying to yell, Doe is telling him, you know, you have a beautiful wife. And so I took a trophy, her pretty head. I tried to play husband. I tried to taste the life of a simple man. It didn't work out. So, I took a souvenir. Her pretty head. And that's when Somerset arrives and he's like, put the gun down. And Mills is like, what is he talking about? What's going on? And this is when we get the famous several lines. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? I'll show you with the box. Who's in the box? Oh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? What's in the fucking box? So good. Um, it's her head. Gwyneth Paltrow's head, who we haven't talked about this whole time, because she's in all the scenes that don't relate to the main murders. Her head is in the box, and John Doe killed her to represent the sin of envy. And it's a little mixed up and it tells you how prideful he is of himself and how self-important he is that even though he is the sinner, he's not the one that's punished directly through the sin of envy. The one who is envied is killed. So how does he get punished? Well, through the representation of the last sin, wrath. So we have envy and wrath. 
Envy, painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, joined with the desire to possess the same advantage. Quote, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. First Peter 2, 1 through 2. And wrath, strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Quote, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, 1. And John Doe has planned this. He needs to die for his sin, and Mills is going to be the one to do it. Mills is proactively punished for his wrath by his wife being murdered. Mm -hmm. And what really sets him over the edge is when Doe tells him, mentions about how she begged for her life, for her life and the life of her child, and Somerset slaps him which is the first real emotion. Like we see him get like slightly worked up or angry a little bit. This is the first real emotion that Somerset expresses. And, you know, he tells him, shut up and he slaps him, and, but it's too late. It's already been said. And Mills is like, what, what, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? And Doe is like, oh, you didn't know. She begged for her life to take Shut up! She begged for her life. Shut up! And for the life of the baby inside of her. Shut up! Oh. He didn't know. She was pregnant. And he had no idea. And there's this theme running throughout. We told the story earlier of Somerset. And what happened when his love got pregnant. And how he knows he made the right decision, even though it basically ruined his life, not to bring a child into this world that they live in, right? Um, but it it just destroys Mills. And he struggles with it for a long time, and Somerset's trying to stop him, trying to get him to put down the gun, until ultimately Mills unloads six bullets into John Doe, killing him. Six bullets plus one that Somerset fired in the air to get the delivery driver to stop. Seven bullets. So the movie ends with Mills being put in a cop car and being driven away and Somerset saying, hey, whatever he needs, I'll be around to the chief. Even though Mill's plan was to, when he retired, move away out to a farm or something like that and get away from this life, ultimately he's not leaving. He's stuck. He's trapped. And that's also represented by a scene earlier in the film when he he throws something at or he throws the metronome. He throws the metronome. He throws the metronome. And that's that's that turning point where he's stuck now and he realizes it, that he can't hide the chaos of this world, quote, the city, uh, anymore with just order. And that's also after the after this point, that's also where we see him emote more. And he explains at the end that he thinks the world is worth fighting for now. Yeah, it's it's narration. And it's the only bit of narration in the entire movie. I remember being really mad at movie hipsters who like, yo, no, you never need narration. If you need narration, then it's a bad movie. And I'm like, well, what if the circumstances make it appropriate? But as I grow older and I watch more movies, more and more I realize that 
usually the circumstances do not warrant it. Uh, if you have Morgan Freeman. That's the thing, though. <laughs> Is that it's Morgan fucking Freeman. If it wasn't Morgan Freeman, I would say there's zero reason to have narration. Because it's Morgan Freeman, you want some narration somewhere. Wrapping, <laughs> wrapping a pretty little bow on the end of the movie is like kind of a, a a mark on the film for me. Like it's like, ah, you just just end you should have just ended it. It left, it leaves me feeling a little yeah. At the end there, but that is the movie. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Kelsey, what do you want to talk about about Seven? I think this is a great movie. I feel a butt coming on. No. Oh, okay. I think it's beautifully directed. The cinematography is amazing. The acting, well... Okay, let's talk about the acting. The acting isn't great. Morgan Freeman is great. Brad Pitt and Morgan... Fre no, I'd say even Morgan Freeman, it's not his best... It's not his best. Oh, God, maybe it is his best. But, I mean, here's what I wrote. I wrote while watching the movie. I think we all know what Morgan Freeman's best is. It's um, the uh, prison... Um, Shawshank, Shawshank Redemption. Redemption. Thank you, yes. Uh I wrote, you can sort of see the acting in this film, see in quotes. Everything is sort of deliberate, like an old noir movie, and that makes it very endearing. Kelsey's doing hand motions right now because fucking Brad Pitt is all about the hand motions. And you'll notice <laughs> it's always with his right hand because his left hand actually did get injured in the making of the film. I know. That's a fact that everyone knows. So let's go over a few facts that everyone knows. David Fincher is one of those directors who you know things about his movies. Like Steven Spielberg or, or other prolific directors, he has those facts that fucking everyone knows because it's really interesting. So facts like they didn't remove the silver from the film stock in, in the bleach bypass, which is what keeps it this dark quality. You know, all of John Doe's books were actual books. It took two months to actually write uh, all the books. The set director or the somebody, I can't remember who, actually wrote in every page of every one of those books. And it took two months. And if you see it, it's tiny handwriting. Yes. Um, and it cost $15,000, apparently, <laughs> of work. Well, imagine how much that would hurt your hand. Yeah, no, totally. Interestingly, Somerset says that it would take the police two months just to read all the books. New Line, the producers originally didn't want the film to end that way. They wanted it to end with the detectives winning and uh, the wife alive. But Brad Pitt refused to make the film if it was changed. Also, when they sent the script to David Fincher, somebody accidentally sent the original ending version of the script, not the one they intended to send to him, which had the, the altered ending. And so when he found out that they wanted to alter it, he was like, no. So between him and Brad Pitt, you know, and who knows if he got the wrong script, he may never have made this movie. And this movie might not have been what it is today. What else? Yeah, I think that's it. So th there are just a few facts here that, that, Everyone knows about the movie. I just wanted to burn through them really quick. But so you brought those, that up because of Brad Pitt's acting with his hands. 
Yeah, he does a lot of like pointed acting with his hands. You want to talk more about that? I thought we were going to say it's a weakness that Pitt has. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this is really, really early for him. The re- the reason he chose this role and the reason he chose Fight Club is because he didn't want to make cheesy movies like Legends of the Fall. He was tired of that, and he didn't want to do that anymore. He was tired of just being the heartthrob character in the drama movies. So he went back to movies that were a little dirtier, like he did uh, Thelma and Louise. And he's he, barely in there. I know. And he's in, in uh, California. And um, 12 Monkeys, which is what I think of when I think of Brad Pitt. 12 Monkeys came out the same year this did, I think, or shortly thereafter. Um, and he does this yeah, a with, lot. With the hand. <laughs> he was also in True Romance. Yes. He's the, he's the guy on the couch. <laughs> I wish I could think of the line. <laughs> yeah, I, I think of it now. <laughs> it's really funny. Kind of send me, man. Fucking kill you, man. Uh, yeah. So me and, my, me and my friend Nate used to say it a lot. <laughs> so they he gravitated towards these roles, but he didn't really have a lot of experience in big budget, like impressive A plus films like this one. So it's obvious that his acting isn't that great. And to be honest, Brad Pitt's acting never really gets that great. <gasps> He has a ceiling, and that ceiling is like Fight Club, Ocean's Eleven. Like, can you think of another movie where he's really great? Like, he's perfect for Meet Joe Black because he's playing – spoilers, he's playing death, and he doesn't know how to be human. Like, he is so perfect. He is as an angel. He does not know how to behave like a human being. That's the problem with Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, honey, if you're listening, I love you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that being said, I i mean, Morgan Freeman is just always going to be good. Kevin Spacey, I know, I know, we all hate him now. That doesn't mean that he didn't do a fantastic job in this movie. Yes. Gwyneth Paltrow is meh. I mean, she's barely in the movie. She has... A couple great scenes when they're all laughing around the dinner table and when she meets Morgan Freeman in the diner to talk about what to do now that she find out found out that she's pregnant. But aside from the acting, I mean, the story is so compelling. It's a detective story. I love detective stories. So I love I. God, I love detective stories. <laughs> I love watching the pieces get put together. Uh-huh. It's visually stunning. It's interesting. It's scary. It's suspenseful. It's a fantastic movie. I really, really like it. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, a few other things I want to talk about. There's so many things I could talk about. I'm going to go through Let's while do you're a- talking. Okay. So Kelsey's going to review. I'm going to talk about a few things. We'll do a little bit of a lightning round at the end of this. So there are three videos which I would recommend you watch on YouTube that are about David Fincher in general, but also specifically about Seven. Uh, one is, again, Every Frame a Painting. We talked about that when we talked about Silence of the Lambs, Tony Show, And his episode entitled, And the Other Way is Wrong, he uses quotes from Fincher himself. Uh, one being, they know you could do anything, so the question is, what don't you do, not what do you do? And Tony identifies four things that Fincher doesn't do. He doesn't do handheld. 
Specifically, Seven has the most handheld shots of any of his movies, but he keeps them all in the single digits. And one of those scenes that he uses in particular as an example is when Somerset's running back to Doe and Mills in the desert, the camera on Somerset being frantic is handheld and it's shaky. The camera on Mills is shaky as well, but the camera on Doe is on a tripod. It is perfectly still and controlled just like Doe is. Um, and we'll talk about why, what the camera has to do with characters in another one of these videos. Number two is he tries to mask human-controlled camera work, which is, again, another reason he doesn't use handheld shots. He likes the camera to seem omniscient. He doesn't cut to a close-up unless he needs to. According to Fincher, when you use a close-up, you're telling the audience, look at this, this is important. So it had better be important. The more he's directed, the less often he uses close-ups. Uh, and that makes close-ups in his movies special because he doesn't use them normally. And number four, he doesn't move the camera unless he has to. So he has this camera that is omniscient and sees everything. It focuses on characters and only moves when it has to. And he also talks about how drama happens when people learn new information. Think back to David Fincher movies. That's really where all the drama is is when people learn things, hence a detective story. He also does a really good job of breaking down the scene where Somerset tries to get rid of the case and Mills tries to get the case. But the captain says no to both of them. Even if you don't like Fincher, this is some of the best craft in directing right now, and it is absolutely worth studying. And if you do like him, here's what he thinks of you. I think people are perverts. I've maintained that. That's been, I've, that's the foundation of my career. The other video I want you to watch is from Captain Christian called Invisible Details, where he talks about how Fincher's trademark is deception. And it's all about how he uses CGI. And he uses CG in a lot of his movies. Like, not, not the number of movies, but the number of shots in the movies. Like, they're insane in the thousands. And most of the time you don't notice because he uses them really effectively. Sometimes they stand out a little bit, though. Um, but he likes to, to use CG to do things that aren't uh, physically possible. Ironically, to make it as real as possible. When we talk about Zodiac, he uses a lot of CG to make it seem like the, the situations and the scenes really were back then that he can't recreate physically. But it also allows him to have this omniscient camera like they talked about in um, Every Frame of Painting. He also uses CG blood so he can shoot as many takes as he likes, which is a lot, dozens and dozens of takes without having to redress the set and clean up the blood and set up new squibs and, and all of that. All of the CG is there to immerse, not to impress, as Captain Christian says. His visual effects are always in service of the story. They're not there to be recognized. They're not there to impress. They're there to immerse. It takes titanium and aluminum and steel and glass and lasers to do one thing, impart feeling, and that's the magic of cinema. And finally, there's a Nerd Rider video, How David Fincher Hijacks Your Eyes. Interestingly, at the end of the video, he actually recommends the Captain Christian and Every Frame of Painting videos that I just talked about. And this video, How David Fincher Hijacks Your Eyes, is all about how Fincher uses really, really common camera movements, like everyday movements since the beginning of film of tilting, panning, and tracking to match the velocity and direction of the moving character within the frame. 
That's because Fincher puts utmost importance on character's behavior. That tells you more about a character than anything else. According to Robin Wright, who was in House of Cards and directed um, at least one episode, said that he told her that behavior is the most important thing. That what you should focus on is behavior over time as a fraction And this allows us to develop an unconscious connection with the character. Without them saying things about the character, you watch things and your eyes unwittingly follow the character that's the focus because of these subtle camera movements. You really should watch it because you'll never be able to miss it again. And it will tell you right away what the focus of this scene is and who you should be paying attention to and what behavior you should be paying attention to. David Fincher is obsessed with behavior. He knows that the way a person moves is a key part of who they are and what they want. He knows that if a person is running and the camera follows that running exactly, then it's like the audience is running too. He knows that the truth of exasperation is in the speed someone lurches forward. He knows that fear can express itself in exactly how slow someone stands up or that when a person floats back in astonishment, the camera should float with them. Those three videos I would highly recommend. Again, that was Every Frame of Painting and The Other Way is Wrong, Captain Christian Invisible Details, and Nerd Writer How David Fincher Hijacks Your Eyes. All right, that was a lot. Lightning round. Okay. I just want to say this right now. There are a billion things I could talk about for this movie, so I'm just going to skip to the best ones. Yeah. At one point... Morgan Freeman says to the co- to the head cop commissioner, you know, I don't understand this place anymore. And he says to him, it's the same as it always has been. And I think that that is that kind of encompasses how a lot of cops feel about their jobs. Over time, it stops becoming it stops being that you want to do good. And it makes you hard and it makes you hate everything. And we kind of see that in the cop who tries to hold on to his innocence, but that makes him a bad cop. And I can relate to that as like a teacher. I've seen it in teachers. Yeah. You start out- You try to detach yourself from it. Exactly. Yeah. You start out wanting to be a good teacher. You end up detaching. You end up hating your life. Yeah. A lot of teachers hate their careers now. And- When they get older. Right. And and if you try to- I guess invoke the feeling that made you a teacher in the first place, that thought of, or insert cop, or any other profession where you serve. When you try to tap into that caring, it it will bite you in the ass. Mm -hmm. There's the one part where they do things that John Doe doesn't expect. And that is because he had no idea that the cops could view the records on, in the library. And that's when he gets caught. But otherwise, his plan goes off completely without a hitch, and John Doe succeeds. 100% exactly what he wanted to happen happens. The only time it almost goes off the rails is when the police do something unexpected. Mm-hmm. They find a note at the gluttony scene that says, Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. Long is the way and hard that out of hell leads up to light. From Milton. Paradise Lost. This is what Somerset attaches to when he says this is going to go on. These aren't, this isn't the only killing. Yes. That's how he, he figures out, okay, this, yeah, this is a serial killer. This is a serious situation. And it also leads him to understanding that his killer is an intelligent person, which is what leads him to go to the library and look at books. Which, which is, is something he what, do, does. Yeah. Which is what leads to him thinking, hey, if I'm looking up these books and he's quoting these books... 
maybe we should be looking into a person who looked at these books. Right. And it's Somerset is just as smart as he is. Again, we see that. Arlie Ermy, who plays the police chief, finds them sleeping on the bench. This is one of those moments. I forget which video it is, but it shows um, which one of the YouTube videos it is. But they talk about how you can see visually these characters becoming closer throughout the film. And at this moment, they're sleeping together on a bench and Mills is leaning on Somerset and they're both fast asleep. Arlie Ermy comes in and says, wake up, Glimmer Twins. <laughs> um, that is Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Their nickname is the Glimmer Twins. <laughs> wake up, Glimmer Twins. So before Morgan Freeman decides to stay and help Brad Pitt find John Doe, he writes him a letter and says, these are the books that you should look up. Yes, and he tries. <laughs> He tries. To his credit, he tries, and he's getting frustrated. Fucking Dante. <laughs> and that's when a cop bangs on the door and hands him a package, and he's like, good work, officer. And he opens the package, and it's Cliff's notes of all the books. <laughs> Which, I mean, who has time to do that much reading? Right, you're not going to read all those books, yeah. Uh, this is just something I noticed. Sloth is the one crime where there's a photographic record of it. They find photographs of the year that he'd been starving this guy of the progression, right, from when he started to when um, they caught him a year later. That is also the same scene that John Doe shows up. They don't know it's him, but he shows up as a photographer. I thought that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. This is another one of those movies that has a formative justice moment for me. We talked about in our episode on Hexen about how... The way we tested for witchcraft really, really instilled the sense of justice in me and how angry it made me as a child. Uh, seeing this movie is, has another one of those moments, and it's Gwyneth Paltrow's death. She dies. She was pregnant. She hated being there and didn't want to be in the city in the first place. And she was only there because he wanted to be there. She was there for him. And all of those things together just tear me up inside every single time. I cannot watch this movie without getting, like, super emotional when they open that box. At one point, they talk about all of the books that he took out, which is what leads them to find him. Here are the books. The Divine Comedy, History of Catholicism, Murderers and Madmen, Modern Homicide Investigation... In Cold Blood, which I'm currently reading, so yes. I'm not a serial killer. <laughs> cool. It's a very famous book, though, that one. True. Of Human Bondage, and when he sees he that Brad Pitt goes, bondage? And Morgan Freeman it's goes, not, not, not the kind you're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> of Human Bondage is apparently the author's uh, favorite author, Andrew Kevin Walker. His favorite author is the one who wrote Of Human Bondage. I can't remember who what his name is. <laughs> Marquise de Chade. <laughs> so great. The Marquis de Sade. And Sade is spelled S-A-D-E, which is the same way that famous performing artist Chade spells her name. So he pronounces it Chade. Human bondage. Bondage. Not what you think. Okay. Marquis de Chade. Marquis de Sade. Whatever. Thomas Aqua something? Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a really cute moment. It is. It's They're great moment. together, and seeing their relationship form really is something. 
Mm-hmm. Another thing about the writing of this movie is there's a lot of clever ways that the film teaches the audience. Yeah. Now you have to accept the fact that you're being looked at as an idiot like Brad Pitt is. Yes. And that Morgan Freeman is He's not teacher. an idiot. He's just uninformed. Uninformed. Yes. <laughs> and But there, there are several moments in the film that are just like that, where it's like Brad Pitt's like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And Morgan Freeman swoops in to give him all the knowledge he needs. Yep. When, when they first get to John Doe's apartment, Brad Pitt says, it's like Charlie's fucking angels. We had to get his name off a computer. <laughs> Which is how we do all of our research now. Yeah, and they fucking, they print stuff off of a dot matrix printer. This is the 90s, people. So when they had computers, but people were still really fucking wary of them. When they're interviewing the guy at Wild Bill's leather shop, they say to him, you know, like, you made this for him? And he goes, yeah, I figured it was performance art. I've made weirder shit than this. <laughs> Yeah. And that makes me, you know, like, yeah, sure. what the fuck else have you made? Of course. Some weird shit. Performance artists are weird. <laughs> you know, the kind that, like, shit on stage and stuff like that. I hate the scene with the guy who had sex with the blonde. Because I would just say, no, just fucking kill me. Yeah. Either I'm going to have to live with what I just, what I'm about to do. I don't think he was prepared for what that would be like to what that would do to his psyche. I think he was interested in staying alive and it was self-preservation and he didn't realize ahead of time that he was not preserving anything. The preservation would be to accept the death. I think opposite of pride basically. Right. But apparently the actor um, who, God, I remember from Very Bad Things, is he in? Yeah. It may be apocryphal, but so the story goes that he didn't sleep for two days. And he, before he filmed his scenes, he would breathe in and out rapidly, very quick, until he started hyperventilating. And that's when they would shoot. Now... I doubt that's actually the case. There's probably a little bit to it. He'd probably start to be breathing heavy, but I doubt he didn't sleep for two days and then hyperventilated before every take because knowing David Fincher, he would have done 50 of them. <laughs> he would be dead. <laughs> there is a lot of discussion about apathy in this film. At one point when they're interviewing the man who worked at the establishment, he says, do you like what you do? Do you like what you see? Do you like being around this? And the guy goes, no, I don't fucking like it, but that's life, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And while I see the argument for Morgan Freeman's character arc and saying that, you know, in the end he realizes there is something to fight for, life, family, uh, love, happiness, all these things are worth fighting for. But I'm a lot more inclined to agree more with the guy who works at the place. I get through it. If I don't get through it, what else am I going to do? Yeah. And I think that even though you, like you said at the end, it's kind of tied up with a little bow. I think it might be more that Morgan Freeman. Is justifying why he's staying? No, I think he's just found a different way to get through it. Yeah. I don't think. He's really changed. 
so much as he has found a better way to get through it. All right. Kelsey, Mm -hmm. what do you think this movie's Rotten Tomatoes score is? 93. 80%. Wow. A brutal, relentlessly grimy shocker with taut performances, slick gore effects, and a haunting finale. Its Metacritic rating is 65. Wow. Underrated or overrated? Very underrated. Very underrated. What would you give it? I think a 97. Very good. Very, very good. Around there. We've talked about this before, but the scoring is not objective and it doesn't like we're not taking 100 and then subtracting all the errors or whatever, all the things we don't like. It it doesn't work that way. It's entirely subjective. We just come up with it based on a feeling. Mm -hmm. I would give this movie 100. Absolutely. This is a 100% movie for me. Despite the acting. Yes. I think the acting is endearing. I think it adds to the film as a whole. And it gives it that, like I said, that crime noir feeling of the deliberately acted film. Interesting. Yeah. I think I think this movie is impeccable. I love it. I absolutely love it. I don't think it's I don't think it's perfect. Not at all. But I think I would like to give this movie the best rating I could give it. Wow. All right. That is 1995's Sesevenin, if we're taking the fan four stick route. Um, <laughs> no, that's the way it was actually, like, written. The if movie you go, posters yeah. have the seven Well, that's in so, it. so did fan, fan four stick. Fantastic Four. It did the same thing. <laughs> it, it replaced the A with the four. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was seven. There are seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. You can expect five more of these. Before we move on to our next David Fincher film, Zodiac, Slash Cards. Kelsey, what do you got for me? Who directed 2007's Halloween? (sighs) Mr. Robert Zombie. Correct. So much potential, Rob! (laughs) Do something else, goddammit. <laughs> Do a romantic comedy. Please. All right, Kelsey. Yeah. What actress played the lead role of Melanie Daniels in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, 1963? Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedren is correct. Doing another movie that we've done before. Mm-hmm. I love it when they happen to show up on these cards. I know we're doing it right then, right? Mm-hmm. All right, moving on to our next film from 2007, Zodiac, written by James Vanderbilt, based on the book by Robert Graysmith, who is a character in the movie, and directed by David Fincher, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Mark Ruffalo, and the rest. (laughs) Kelsey, what's the premise of Zodiac? Zodiac is about the Zodiac Killer. It was a real-life person who murdered five people that we know of, that he claimed to have killed more, uh, between the years of 1969 and 1974, I believe. And it tells the story of the police officers and the chronicle 
writers, the San Francisco Chronicle writers, who tried to determine his identity. Yeah, compelling stuff. To this day, no one has been arrested for that crime. Correct. That's because the most outstanding person they believe to do it is already dead, so it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> and we'll talk about who that is a little bit later. Kelsey, the movie is on Hulu. It's on Amazon Prime. It's available for free on a streaming service that you likely pay for already. So should people watch this movie? If you don't mind watching a two and a half hour movie. That's one of the biggest downsides of the movie is its length. And if you don't mind watching a movie where you don't find out who the killer is. Those two things combined are exactly my biggest problems with the movie. If it weren't for those two things, I would absolutely tell you to watch it because it is a great movie. They should not be deterrents. You should see this movie. Absolutely, 100%. If those two things bother you... Listen, if you're going to fall asleep in the middle of the movie because it's two and a half hours long and you fall asleep during every two and a half hour movie, then watch it in two sittings. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. All right. So go ahead and watch the movie. I feel like not enough people actually watched this movie. Didn't do nearly as well as a bunch of other Fincher movies. When we get back, we'll discuss 2007's Zodiac. Dear Editor. This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas and the girl on Vallejo. Stay in the car. Man, you really creeped us out. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. Sergeant Mullenix. Hi, this is San Francisco Chronicle. I'm looking for someone to shed some light on a letter we received. You guys got one too. Got any hard suspects? About 90 an hour. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher, I will go on a kill rampage. Where the federal agency has failed at decoding it. A cartoonist has succeeded. Man is the most dangerous animal of all. You have the ciphers, the military boot press, the bloody knives. All circumstantial. You threatened my life. You're going to catch this guy or not? When is it going to be finished? When you catch him? When you arrest him? I need to know who he is. I need to stand there and know that it's him. Nothing makes sense anymore. I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. Are you sure there's nobody else in the house? Kelsey. Mm. What happens in Zodiac? So we open up 1969. Fourth of July. Nice. <laughs> the weed number. <laughs> and a couple go off to Lover's Lane. And while they are there, a car pulls up. And at first they're a little creeped out, but then the car drives away. And the guy shouts out the window, fuck off and die. <laughs> then the girlfriend makes fun of him for it. Really? Fuck off and die? Yeah. <laughs> made me laugh. Fuck off and die. What? Fuck off and die? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> this also seems like she knows who it is. It does. It, yeah, I wrote that. Um, he is more nervous than she is. And I don't think the movie, I mean, it should be known this is a true story. This actually happened. These were real people. Also, Fincher was insistent that... They really only cover stuff that they have eyewitness accounts of. So whether that's firsthand or thirdhand or whatever, 
as long as there's an eyewitness account, which is why we start at this murder and not the murders from a couple months prior that actually started the Zodiac's killing spree. Yes. What we know in real life is that this girl or this woman, and they do mention it briefly, she's married, right? And so you're automatically, you know, she is cheating on her husband with this boy. However, in real life, she was actually cheating on him with quite a few men. And there was one in particular that was kind of stalking her. And so that's who she thought it was. They don't mention that at all in the movie. Right. They don't explain, although they do um, They do start to track down who the Zodiac might be by the fact that she knew or at least was aware of and had, had spent time with this particular suspect. And so that kind of goes a little bit of the way, if you think back to the first scene, to explaining why she might have been, don't worry about it. Not my husband, but don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. So then the car comes back. He pulls up right behind them, flashes his high beams, and they think it's a cop. So they take out their their IDs and they roll down the window and this guy walks up and he just shoots them. And it's, it's graphic. There's blood splatter and all that, but it's not grotesque. I'd say it's handled tastefully, as tastefully as it can be. Yeah. There are a lot of details in this movie, and we are not going to go over all of them. Right. We're, we're going to hit the, the big beats. So then we meet our main character, Robert Graysmith, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And again, Robert Graysmith is a real person, and he is the one that wrote the book that this movie is based on. Because he spent his life basically obsessed with trying to find out who the Zodiac Killer was. Yes. And he works for the Chronicle. He is a cartoonist. But it's clear that he's a pretty intelligent guy, and he's very interested in listening to what other people are talking about. Right. I mean, despite the fact that he's not very talented socially, he doesn't go out drinking with the guys or really have any friends, really. Um, But he's obviously very smart. He loves puzzles, which is one of the reasons that he was attracted to Zodiac in the first place. So they show us the people at the Chronicle. And they get a letter that is from the Zodiac, and it gives the first cipher that the Zodiac will send in, and it's one of three. And he's asking for them to put it on the front page, or else he will kill more people than he's already killed. And at this point, he's killed, that they know of, he's killed four. He has killed three. Three, sorry. Because one survived. The guy survived from the scene that we saw. Yes, from the scene that we watched in the beginning, the female dies, the male survives, which is where we get our eyewitness account from. Yeah. He didn't see a lot because the high beams and all of that, and the guy started shooting right away. So he didn't see too much, but we know the details of what happened. As soon as Jake Gyllenhaal sees the cipher, he immediately wants to start putting it together. We also meet... Paul Avery, played by Robert Downey Jr. He's their crime writer. He's the guy that <clears throat> writes about crime in the greater San Francisco area, which includes uh, cities that aren't part of San Francisco but are in the nearby area. Mm-hmm. He is obviously on top of it and starts to talk to the other uh newspapers, and he starts asking uh, police department questions and stuff like that. And... 
Jake Gyllenhaal is just obsessed with figuring out the cipher, but who figures out the cipher? Teachers. Yay! <laughs> they're amateur puzzle solvers, and they're like, Mother, would you like to solve this puzzle? You know, like one of those times. <laughs> hey, take a gander at this code thing. Okay. You want to give it a go? <laughs> yeah, they just sat down and they show you how all these people thought it was going to be some crazy, hard to figure out thing. Also that he would reveal his identity. Yeah. And Jake Gyllenhaal called that he wouldn't give his identity. Yeah. So this couple puts it together. And it explains that he loves killing people because it is so much fun. Because man is the most dangerous animal. And that is a reference to the film The Most Dangerous The Most Game. Dangerous Game, directed by Irving Pitchell and Ernest B. Shudsack, written by James Ashmore Creelman and based on the story by Richard Cannell. Yeah, I it's hard for me to imagine that it took people a while to figure out what that meant. Yeah, the man being the most dangerous game is pretty common now, but if you think back in sixty-nine when the book was really popular? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the movie was from 1932. Oh. So, like, it's not like it's recent, and it's not like, you know, pop culture is picking it up or anything like that. I so. guess being an English person, it right. seems silly to me that no one would get it. Right, yeah. The other thing the cipher says is ostensibly what the Zodiac is killing for, beyond the fact that man is the most dangerous game. That what he what he feels is that by mastering humanity, he's going to be going to heaven and every person he kills will be a slave to him in heaven. Really fucking creepy knowing that this is a real dude. Yeah. He's just a crazy person. Yeah. He's he's just absolutely insane. Who wanted to be famous. Yeah. That becomes very apparent. I mean. It already kind of is. He's asking for them to put all this stuff on their front page or he's going to kill a bunch of people, you know, which they didn't. None of them put it on their front page and he didn't kill anybody. At least not because of this. Yeah, Right. So the next murder that we get to see is a college couple relaxing by a, a lake in Napa. And this is where we get the famous picture of Zodiac. Yeah, which is um, like a bomb disposal hood that he's wearing that has the Zodiac symbol on the chest, which is a circle with a cross in it. it looks like crosshairs. Um, it's actually the brand symbol for Zodiac, which is a line of watches, which one of the uh, circumstantial evidence at best, but one of the suspects just happened to own a Zodiac watch. Mm -hmm. um, and the interesting thing that we're going to get into uh, actually, we'll get into it now. One of the interesting things is that this Zodiac is the same as the first Zodiac from the first scene, but the next two scenes where we see the Zodiac, it's a different. It's different people. So the Zodiac is actually played by three different men, none of whom play any of the suspects. The movie is not coming to any conclusions for you, despite the fact that Gray Smith feels he's basically inconclusively decided who the Zodiac was. Mm -hmm. And so the Zodiac killer walks up to this couple with a gun and he forces them to, well, he forces the woman to tie up her boyfriend 
And then he, the Zodiac Killer, ties her up and then uh, hog ties the boyfriend. And what's really interesting about this, and this is, again, true story, and it's because the guy survives. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> he... He explains the conversation that he had with him because most people, when you see someone with a gun, you're thinking you're going to be robbed, right? Right. That's that's what most people would probably assume, okay? And so when he shows up, to keep him calm, I guess, he struck up a conversation with him. And when you read... The conversation, it it reads very similar to the dialogue used in the film. And it's just bizarre. It's really, really strange how you can talk to a person and they seem, at least to a point, slightly rational. And then they just go crazy. He's making up lies. He's saying he's going to go to Mexico. He wants their car. He wants their money. It's all bullshit. He, he broke out of prison and he killed a guard. But there are other things, too. Like, for example, the man who survived asked him, you know, like, are you nervous? Because his hands were shaking. And according to him, and of course, none of us were there except for him. So who fucking knows? But this is what he says. He says that the Zodiac Killer laughed and said, yeah, I guess I am. Psychotic people, I just can't imagine. I can't imagine what it would be like to have a real heart-to-heart with a psychotic person if they were just completely honest and truthful with you and you you were able to hear what their thoughts are. The fact that he laughed and said, I guess so. Like, who knows? That could all be bullshit, but it it sounds like he's having a real human conversation and you don't think of psychotic people as being able to have real human conversations. This scene also is where we get one of the most iconic shots from the entire film. Uh, There are a couple. Uh, This one being when they're hogtied and Zodiac is kind of starting to walk away, but we don't really get a clear indication that he's ready to leave yet. Uh, The guy asks him... Listen, since they're going to ask, was the gun even loaded? You know, just because people are going to ask, was that thing even loaded? Zodiac kneels down, and the camera is at that guy's level down on the ground, and pulls out the clip and shows that it's full. Sure enough, he had a loaded gun, but he doesn't use it. He pulls out a knife instead and immediately starts stabbing the dude on the ground six times Mm -hmm. and then moves on to his girlfriend who ends up dying. The guy does not. And this is one of the theories that comes out in the movie is that he spends a little bit too much time focusing on the women that he doesn't finish the job on the men. He's eager to get to the women. He starts with the men eager to get to the women and spends too much time on the women leaving the men alive. Now, again, according to the the man who survived, he said he pretended to die. Meanwhile, in the first murder scene, in the film, it shows that he started to crawl to the back of the car, and that's what caught the attention of the Zodiac, and he came back to shoot him. Yeah, but he still didn't kill him. Still didn't kill him, but did go back yeah. to try and finish the job. So I think what's pretty clear is that he is much more concerned with killing the the women and as long as he thinks the men are dead, he'll walk away. Yeah. So he ends up actually taking their car, and he doesn't actually need it. 
He wasn't doing it for any purpose. He wasn't robbing them. He wasn't stealing their car to get to Mexico. He writes a bunch of dates and other words on the side of the car and just leaves it on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. And calls it in himself. Yeah. And confirming that, yes, I am really the Zodiac. Here are the dates of these murders and the circumstances and stuff. Oh, I forgot. He also called in the first one. Yeah. Which these are clear indicators, again, that he was looking for attention. Yes. Which becomes an issue later on with deciding, is he really responsible for some of these murders? Mm -hmm. Or is he just asking for attention? Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact that whoever the person was that called did commit the murders because he knew lots of details that were not uh, given. Yeah, very specific details. So we know that whoever that person was truly did kill those people. After that, we get to meet Mark Ruffalo. Dave Tosky. Who plays the head cop on his on the Zodiac's story. Dave Tosky, they, they call him, I think two or three times in the movie, they call him Bullet. Uh, at one point, Graysmith actually says, oh man, he wears his gun like Bullet. And Avery tells him, yeah, that's because they based Bullet on him. That's a true story. They actually did base the character of Bullet on Tosky. You want to tell our listeners who you're talking about? Who Bullet is? Bullet is, it's a Steve McQueen movie. He plays a cop. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Isn't that the one where they basically do the Zodiac Killer, though? No, that is... Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry, yeah. So not the same. Not the same, no. Interesting. So there's a movie based about... Dave Tosky, but that was before the Zodiac stuff. Why was Dave Tosky famous? Why did anyone care about him? Why would you... Why would you make a character like him. So the movie isn't based on him. Steve McQueen just based the character on Tosky specifically. So like the way Why? he carried his holster and stuff like that, because before filming, he 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 worked with Tosky on preparing for the role. Why? I'm asking because movies are generally made in L.A. Tosky was a cop in no. San Francisco. Bullet famously takes place in San Francisco. Bullet has um, one of the most famous car chases in all of cinema history taking place on the hills of San Francisco. So when you see like a car ramping off one of those hills in San Francisco, they're copying Bullet. Oh. Yeah. It just happens to be that when he needed to learn about being a cop and how to act like a cop and everything, he was assigned to Toski. Ah, and why does Toski wear it in a certain way? What What's different about it? It's called the fast draw holster. So you take it from your side instead of from your hip. So I'm used to seeing that. So every time I, I've seen that, it's because of this guy, David Toski. Bullet made it famous, yeah. Wow. I mean, the holster existed. It's not like it didn't exist before, but Bullet's the movie that made it famous. And Bullet wore it, and Steve McQueen wore it like that in Bullet because of Toski. Interesting. Yeah. One last thing about Tosky is that in an interview in Empire Magazine in 1999, George Lucas talked about how, as a child, he was fascinated by the Zodiac murders. Because he, I think he actually grew up in Marin County, which is where Skywalker Ranch is, and that's in the Bay Area. He was so fascinated with it, but he felt that Tosky was mistreated. We'll talk a little bit later as to why he felt that he was mistreated because that comes up in the plot. But he felt bad for the guy. He thought he was doing a really great job and that the public didn't treat him very well. And so 
in honor of Toski, who I I wouldn't think to pronounce his name Toski. How would you think to pronounce his name? How's it spelled? T-O-S-C-H-I. Toshi. Good. Yeah, or something similar to that. And when it's only written down and you're probably not hearing it very often, that's how I would think to pronounce it, too. That is why there is a famous line in the first Star Wars movie. But I was going to go into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. <laughs> Tashi Station is named after Dave Toski. I just thought that that was a pretty interesting little anecdote. From Very interesting. Straight from the horse's mouth, according to George Lucas. Cool. <laughs> just thought that was pretty cool. You'd think that he'd have given him a better line than the one that everyone makes fun of. Yeah, but in the original script, in the original script and in some of the (laughs) deleted scenes, they actually do go to Tashi Station like it's a big place. Oh. So, yeah. uh It just, in the actual edited final version, all you get is that one whiny line. But I was going to go into Tashi Station and pick up some power converters. But I was going into Tashi Station to pick up some power converters. Mark Hamill, we love you. Please don't be upset with us. (laughs) We worship you. <laughs> so we meet him, and we meet his partner. Bill Armstrong. And the actor who plays Bill Armstrong is famous because... Uh, for two things. He was in Revenge of the Nerds. Anthony That's right. Edwards. Yes. And, I knew I knew him. And he's probably most famous for being in ER. Yes, With George it. Clooney. He's the other male cop in ER, or male cop, male doctor in ER. Yes. Okay. And it's cute. Every time they get in the car, Mark Ruffalo wants animal crackers. (laughs) He's always woken up in the middle of the night, and he always wants animal crackers. It's very cute. We get a slight look into their personal lives. They don't spend a lot of time. Most of the personal life stuff is spent with Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. But a cute line that he says that gets brought up later is, you ever try Japanese? Oh, yeah. Mark Ruffalo's like... You mean like teriyaki? <laughs> He's like, no, like the raw stuff. And Mark Ruffalo's like, I'm eating here. Like, <laughs> disgusting, you know? And I think it's just a, a way for them to show us he doesn't have any time. Yeah. To the point where he can't even try a new food because... He's never he never has personal time. Right. And he would like to expand his horizons. And back then in the late sixties, early seventies, trying sushi was expanding your horizons. <laughs> God, we love sushi. We're really big sushi fans here. <laughs> <laughs> but like Chris said, we do see that Mark Ruffalo is hardly ever around with his family. Which he he really dislikes. He really resents it. Yeah. He loves his family and he doesn't like being away, but that's his job, you know? This is kind of the part where I feel like we can skip a lot of stuff because a lot of the plot here relates to the fact that the murders are taking place in different counties with different jurisdictions. So what you need to know is that it's basically a clusterfuck trying to get any real information because all these different counties have different possession of evidence. They're trying to share information with each other, but because this is a time when even the fax machine was fairly recent, that it's really difficult for them to share any of this information. And plus, they're really selfish. It's like, no, I'm not going to share anything with you unless you share something with me. And so it's really difficult to get anything done. And so Toski and Armstrong are kind of like the bigwigs because they're the San Francisco detectives. Yes. All of the other ones, I I think there's Vallejo. 
There's Napa. And there's one more. Riverside. Yeah, Riverside in Southern California. So all of these different police uh, departments are trying to work together. But as Chris said, it's very difficult. The reason that Toski and Armstrong get this case is because the third set of murders that we get to see in the film is a randomly murdered cab driver tells him to pull over to a certain place and shoots him in the head. And we get um, accounts of this from the cab company who knew the destination and which was like a block or so away from where the murder actually happened and some kids that were inside a building just across the street when it happened. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, when they first sent it out over the radio, they said it was a black person. Yeah, I could give you... A few ideas as to why that is. <laughs> well, obviously racism. I right, mean, yeah. like, that's obvious, but... It's an assumption. Is th Yeah, does anyone know why that actually happened? I don't know. I assume if there's a murder in a bad part of town, it's probably a black guy did it. I understand that. I mean, like, it's terrible. I just mean, like, I understand the, the horrible assumption that comes with police, but... Yeah. The kids full on say it was a white guy. Yeah. And so then it gets corrected, but not before two cops see a guy who was likely the Zodiac and they never stop him because he was white. This, this is three minutes after the shooting. Give or take. Yeah. Did you slow down? Of course we slowed down. All right. Listen, dispatch said it was a Negro male. That, that was corrected. No, but at the time they hadn't changed it. This guy was white. Stocky had a crew cut. Yeah, that's, that's all correct. Listen, it was dark. Did you stop him? Did you talk to him? Yes? No? No. That's just lazy police work. I mean... But I mean, as far as they were concerned, they were told it was a black guy. Doesn't matter. You should be looking for witnesses, people who have heard uh -huh. something, people who sure. might have saw something. So whether or not he's your suspect, he's out walking around at this time of night in the area... Right. You should be stopping him and questioning him. Just to ask him. if he's seen anything. They don't even do that. Yeah. Yeah. None of it. So they found a fingerprint, which leads to a whole nother investigation about trying to find this person. And I think it's just, you know, Chris and I say how much we love detective stories, right? And we just watched Seven, where the clues just go straight forward, Right. Yeah, they might meander a little bit, but they're all from point A to point B. Right. And this shows us in the real world. Yeah. Weird shit happens. You follow it down and it is a dead end. It really is quite fascinating seeing the difference from the same director between a fascinating, completely structured, fantastical crime plot of a serial killer to a real life serial killer. And the same director... Uh, making both films and seeing the differences and how that affects the plot. So I feel like a lot of people would say that this movie meanders. Mm -hmm. That's because the investigation meandered. Yeah. I mean, like I was just saying, you can't love detective stories if you're not willing to go down these alleys that mm -hmm. lead nowhere. That's what their job really is like. And I think that is a good th – that is something that uh, Fincher does really well is – expressing the process to us mm -hmm. and how frustrating it is. Yeah, the and real life facts. Yes. Like even in Seven, which is completely, you know, written and not 
um, based on real life, we go through the frustrating fact of waiting for results on fingerprints and um, dealing with due process and stuff like that still, because that that is what makes the job the job. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the great things about this movie. It's also one of its detriments. Yeah, I mean, it can't help the fact that it's based on real life and this is how things went and he could have made it more fantastical, but he chose to stick to based on a true story and aside from conversations that we can't know whether or not they happened, you know, all the major plot points are based on real life accounts. And right. So- there, there's so much stuff that a lot of people probably feel could have not been in the movie, right? They didn't lead anywhere. But again, I really don't feel like Fincher was trying to go for a cinematic experience. I think he was trying to give us a real life experience. Yeah, I mean we talked in the in the section about seven, there's the video that talks about how he uses CG. That's Captain Christian's video. He uses CG not to impress, but to immerse. And that's really what he's looking to do. He uses his camera and he uses his CG to bring you in and immerse you in what it must have been like to be there. Mm-hmm. I think he's very successful when he does that. So the next thing that happens is the Zodiac asks to speak with uh, Melvin uh, Belli. Be- Belli. I don't remember how B- you say it. B-E-L-I. Belli. I don't remember. Something like that. Um, Brian Cox. Hey, we're back to Brian Cox. Hey. Hey, hey. And so they arrange to have him call in to a talk show and answer the dude's questions, but it kind of goes nowhere. They can't trace him. He doesn't stay on the line very long. And they can't even be sure if who they're talking to is really the Zodiac right. killer. Right. Yeah. Um, and so we have another another time jump, and there are a lot of these in the plot. But the reason that the doctor is super important. Lawyer. He's a lawyer? I thought he was a doctor. No, he's a lawyer. Anyway, a- go ahead. Anyway, the reason that this becomes important is because later on, the cops find out he tried to contact him at home. And he spoke to, the Zodiac Killer spoke to the housekeeper. And it just shows you how... If they hadn't asked, right, all these little he details wouldn't have volunteered can, that information. Yeah, all these little details can fall through the cracks. And that one was a really important one because he said it was his birthday mm-hmm. and they could narrow it down to a week. So they end up questioning this guy based on a tip from his brother-in-law or his brother and sister-in-law, Arthur Lee Allen, played by John Carroll Lynch. No, they start investigating him. They they ask the brother and sister-in-law because the brother's old roommate contacts the police and says, hey, just oh, so you know, yeah. this dude that I knew uh-huh. said all this fucked up shit to me once. Right. And the brother even corroborates it. He's yes. like, yeah, no, he was he's pretty fucked up. I'll even break into his house while he's gone on vacation and get you more, you know, evidence if that will help you, Mm -hmm. Um, which is their way of getting around that part of due process and needing a warrant. If somebody who has access to the house, I guess he wouldn't have to break in. He's his brother, finds something and brings it to them. So the roommate explains that (laughs) 
apparently they were having a hypothetical conversation and he said, you know, if I were going to be a killer, this is what I would do. And we get this, again, super interesting look at what a psycho- psychopath would talk about right. in his spare time for fun with a friend. And I think I think we all, as humans, finding these social connections and testing boundaries to these social connections, do stuff like this. Where it's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, you might reveal something that's slightly embarrassing or revealing about yourself in a way that maybe you could walk it back as a joke if they react negatively to it. And maybe instead you find that there's a connection there. And, you know, but it's nothing like killing people. So if you were a murderer and you lacked social skills like this, you'd probably do the same thing, but with your interests which includes killing people. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And and so he lists a bunch of things he would do, such as uh, taping a flashlight to the gun. Which we know happened. And Mm -hmm. it was information that was not released. He had said he liked the name Zodiac. Yeah. As his name, which is funny because the guy was like, that sounds stupid. And apparently he got really mad. (laughs) He said it would be random people. So that there could be no motivation yep. linked to it. He was drinking Coors, getting a load on. Starts talking about hunting people. Like that book. It says how you can put a light at the end of a gun to use as a sight in the dark. And he said it'd be easy because there'd be no real motive to the thing. Then he said he'd write letters to the police and call himself Zodiac to mess with them. I thought it was a stupid name, so I told him. He got up all upset and said, I don't care what you think. I thought about it a long time, and that's the name I'm going to use. He was raw about losing his job at the school. He talked about shooting out the tires of a school bus and picking off the little darlings. Other thing is, Lee's into skin diving. I know he's been up to that lake a bunch of times. Lake Berryessa. I tried to call the local cops. He blew him off. Thought he was a nut. And that leads them to go talk to the brother. Arthur, uh, yeah, to the brother, and then leads them to questioning Arthur Lee Allen, who was fired from his teaching job for inappropriate contact with young boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we are talking about pederasts. Mm-hmm. Arthur Lee Allen is played by John Carroll Lynch, who you may know from several roles, but who I know as Drew Carey's brother from The Drew Carey Show. Why do I know him again? He always plays somebody creepy. He's got that deep voice. I know how you know him. Okay. He plays the dad in the second season of Channel Zero. Yeah. (laughs) Again, if you're not watching Channel Zero, you need to get on that. It's a really great show. John Carroll Lynch is famous for, he played Norm Gunderson in Fargo. Um, He was one of the McDonald brothers in The Founder. All right, so... They go to question this guy at his job, and he is super creepy. And Toski notices the watch and asks if he can see it. And sure enough, it's a Zodiac watch that has that symbol. And he passes it around to the table. They're there with uh, Elias Codius, who you may know as Casey Jones from the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Uh, he plays Jack Mullinax, one of the detectives, I think the one from Vallejo. And they're like, this is our guy. He's got... Uh, the size 10 shoe. The wing walkers. Which there were only so many made and you could only get if you had military connections and his father was a military man. Yeah. All this other evidence. And so they're like, we got him. We got our guy. This is totally him. But their handwriting expert, played by Philip Baker Hall, who I know from Magnolia. 
says, nope, doesn't match. It's not a match. So they go to uh, the next best thing, which is his protege to get him to say, well, it could possibly be him. Because you also find out that this suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, was ambidextrous, could write with both hands. Yeah. And the the handwriting expert says, I've never seen an ambidextrous person have this different of handwriting on each end. And the other one says, I could see it happening. And it is because of that that they are able to get into his trailer. They are able to get a warrant. And in there, they find all the right guns, all the right ammunition. They find that... He's got problems. He eats squirrels. Yeah, like, he keeps his... squirrels in his trailer and then cooks and eats them. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. I mean, he's got all the makings of being the Zodiac. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, through this process, Gray Smith meets and falls in love with the equally awkward Chloe Savigny. And they get married and... They have their own kids, right? Like, he has kids from a previous marriage, but they have their own kids. Yes. Yeah. And after a while, it's very obvious that this investigation starts kind of uh, taking over his life. Nothing else is important anymore. Yeah, nothing else is important. Like, he even enlists his kids to help him, and they're totally gung-ho about it. But he's like, Because they love their dad. Yeah. But you cannot tell mom about this. Mm -hmm. And we won't save it for later. We won't tease you with it, but- she ends up taking the kids and leaving him. Well, probably a lot because he was putting them second, but also because he puts them in danger. Yes, because at one point they start getting phone calls from somebody who won't identify himself and who's just breathing heavily. Which tells him that he's getting close. Yeah. Right? He wouldn't be, the Zodiac Killer wouldn't be caring about him unless he was doing yeah. something that He sh- did an interview on television, and and so now he's getting these phone calls. He's poking the cage. Exactly. And it puts his entire family at risk. According to Graysmith, when he read the first uh, draft of the script, you know, he wrote the book that the movie's based on, but that's from his perspective, and he wrote it. So when he read what somebody else had written based on his account- Apparently, his only response was, I see now why my wife left me. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. But like, he's like, I can understand now. He's also quoted as saying that he would do it again. Yeah. He would still choose the book over his family, which is kind of fucked up. Yeah, he's not. I think it's 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 kind of obvious that he has some sort of disorder. I don't know if he's. I cannot say I am not a professional. I don't know if he's on the spectrum or something, but it seems like that. Like he's singularly focused on this one thing, this one obsession, and he's really socially awkward. It's at this point that Avery gets a letter which threatens him. It's a card, and in it comes a piece of the shirt that the Zodiac's been sending people. And so he starts – this is when Avery starts going really downhill, Robert Downey Jr. playing yet another character – who has by alcohol drugs and alcohol yeah and from this point forward he just goes downhill and never comes back up he loses his job at the chronicle ends up working for the sacramento Bee, i think or something like that and it just lives in squalor at one point gray smith visits him at, at his home with new information and the guy's like why are you here? Why do you bother me? Get the fuck out of here. And Graysmith is like, fine. I'm sorry I bothered you. And he just leaves and they kind of never talk again. Instead, 
Grace Smith focuses on Toski. Which in real life, that wasn't real, right? They weren't actually friends? I do not know the answer to that. I know that one of those two relationships, either it's Robert Downey Jr.'s relationship with him or it's Toski's relationship was completely fictionalized. Yeah. I don't remember which one. But through Avery and his situation, they end up gathering together more evidence and Toski and Avery have a really bad relationship because Avery shares it with another uh, precinct, not with him. And so they find out the movie, the information secondhand. But Avery leaves the Chronicle. Armstrong quits because he just can't do it anymore. He's like, no, I can't. I'm I'm going to Vice or where does he say he goes? He goes somewhere else. I can't be on call anymore. I want to see these kids grow up. Good for you, Bill. I'm not leaving you holding the bag on anything, am I? No. Okay. Hey, you know what? Maybe I have a chance to try your Japanese food. The raw stuff. But he quits. He gives Toski the car. And another letter comes in from the Zodiac calling out Toski. And a writer from the Chronicle ends up accusing Toski of being the one to write that because there hadn't been a letter from the Zodiac in four years. No, nor additional uh, murders that were attributed to him. So they're like, you know, Toski, you wrote that. You're a narcissist. You're obsessed with people, you know, with the whole bullet thing and like all that. And people believe him and he ends up getting demoted. This is when Graysmith ends up like branching out and going on and and he starts interviewing his own people. He does that television interview. This is when he starts getting those phone calls, which is also another clue because apparently the Zodiac would called one of his victims and 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 prank called the family with these heavy breathing sort of phone calls. But he loses his job as <laughs> as, a, as a cartoonist because he's not even doing that anymore. And Chloe Vinny leaves him, takes the children. There's also another scene around this part where Graysmith is tracking down one of the multiple suspects that it could be. They already said it can't be Alan. Um, so he just kind of leaves the story, right? For a long time, nobody even thinks about him. And Graysmith hadn't really even heard of him. And so he goes around looking and he, and he matches the handwriting to some movie posters that were supposedly written by Rick Marshall, Rick Marshall, who's another one of the suspects. And when he goes to the archivist who keeps all that stuff, He's like, you know, look, this, 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 this handwriting perfectly matches the killers. And the guy's like, that's not his handwriting. That's my handwriting. I wrote for all the posters. The poster that Rick drew, the handwriting is the closest that we have ever come to a match. Rick didn't draw any posters. No, he drew this one. Mr. Graysmith, I do the posters myself. It's my handwriting. And he's like... Uh, and this is one of the most tense scenes in the entire film. It's tense every time I've seen it. Every time. Uh, and the guy's like, okay, well, let's get this done with. And he's like, I don't think anything of it, but it's almost like he's trying to creep Graysmith out. Yeah. So the reason that they think it's this man, Rick Marshall, is because he was obsessed with the, the most dangerous game. Right, the movie. And... There was something else. I don't know. But then they, they linked the handwriting. And so 
like Chris said, he couldn't find Rick Marshall, so instead he goes to this guy. And yeah, it's, who knows, perhaps Graysmith really just was too scared at the time. I think that's exactly what it was. But from the movie, it you don't know if this guy is a crazy person. Yeah, is he the Zodiac? Is you don't he know. is he the um, link to the Zodiac? Like, did they work together? And so he says, you know what? I have the old reels, or I have you know this uh, down in my basement. And you get this awesome shot, which I'm sorry, fucking Fincher and his amazingly framed shots of Graysmith sitting at the table with the poster and the guy. In the doorway down to the basement says, I have it down in the basement. And Graysmith is like, most people in California don't have basements. And he's like, yeah, well, I do. I won't, I won't take any more of your time. Why don't I just go and find out when we play that film? But that's all right. It's not a problem. They're just down in the basement. Not many people have basements in California. I do. And the reason that's important is because in one of the letters that Zodiac sent, he mentioned a basement. Right. And so he goes down there with him, like, really, really terrified. And he's like, uh, never mind, I don't need anything, I'm good. And he, and he goes to run to leave. Like, he is seriously scared. And he realizes that the front door is locked. From the inside with a key. And so the guy slowly walks back up the stairs. Like he turned the light off before Jake Gyllenhaal could even get up the stairs. Right. And and he grabs the key and he reaches past Jake Gyllenhaal, who is like frantically at the door trying to open it and unlocks it and lets him out. Doesn't ask any questions about why he's acting so weird or anything like that. It is a creepy fucking scene. It's really creepy. Apparently this guy who's played by Charles Fleischer is an old family friend of the Gyllenhaals and and they've known each other since he was three. Mm-hmm. So they're really, really good friends. But <laughs> they have this really, really great moment where it's tense as fuck. It's very And tense. really, really scary. There were a couple of other things that I forgot to mention earlier when we were talking about how Arthur Lee Allen was being interviewed. He also mentioned how much he loves The Most Dangerous Game, completely unprompted. Yeah, oh, it's like his favorite movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. They mention that he liked to do misspellings because he thought it was funny. And there yeah. were a lot of misspellings in the Zodiac letters. Uh-huh. Oh, she recognizes how he spells Christmas with two S's at the end. Mm-hmm. Christ Mass. And when he gets up to leave, he says, I look forward to the day when people don't call police pigs. Which the Zodiac calls the police pigs. Mm-hmm. An extra thing about Charles Fleischer, do you know where you know him from, Kelsey? I definitely knew his face, but I don't know why. He's in plenty of things. Probably the thing you know him most for, you never even see his face. But first, he plays the doctor from Nightmare on Elm Street. And most famously, he is Roger Rabbit. Really? Yes. He's the guy who was actually on set playing Roger Rabbit. You know, they had him in the full outfit with the bunny ears on and everything like that. Kind of like James Gunn's brother plays Rocket Raccoon on set. How funny. Yeah, and he does the voice. He's the voice of Roger Rabbit. Really? Yep. One of the people that Graysmith ends up interviewing is a woman in prison who knew the first woman that we saw murdered. Gives us a little insight into this strange man who was at the party that really worried this woman and may have been stalking her 
and so on. And he's like, oh, was it, what's the dude's name? Rick Marshall. Yeah. And uh, and he's like, he had like a like a short, distinct name. And he's like, Rick, was it Rick? And she's like, no, I don't think it was. And she's like, are you sure it wasn't Rick? Because that's the guy that, that Graysmith thinks it might be. And she's like, no. And he's like, okay, fine. And, and that's all he's going to get out of her. So he goes up to leave. And she says, Lee. It was Lee. That's the name. And Arthur Lee Allen goes by Lee. Yes. He does not, not by go by, by Arthur. He makes a point of the fact that he doesn't go by Arthur. He and goes Mark by Ruffalo Lee. calls him Arthur every time he talks to uh-huh. him. Just to piss him off. <laughs> he goes to Toski and he after completely annoying the piss out of the guy and ends up showing up at his house and everything at this point. And Toski's really pissed and he's like, it's Arthur Lee Allen. That's the guy. And Toski listens because he's like, why, why were you even looking at Arthur Lee Allen? Like, he's a fucking footnote in this investigation. But Toski liked him. Yeah, Toski thought he was. And so when this independent corroboration comes in, um, saying that somebody that Toski never even spoke to identified him by name, that, oh, fucking great, more circumstantial evidence. So they go to a diner, and they start explaining everything. They start going over all the details. And Toski's like, it's all, like, circumstantial like you need something stronger than that and he comes up with even more circumstantial evidence but this one even stronger this guy who stalked this girl the first person we saw killed also lived one block away from where the first murder victim that we don't see where she worked Mm -hmm. and he's like is that Right? And he's like, yeah, that's that's right. And so these guys both agree it's Arthur Lee Allen. This is the guy. But there's nothing they can fucking do about it. So, the prints, the handwriting. I'm not asking you as a cop, but I am a cop. I can't prove this. Just because you can't prove it doesn't mean it's not true. Easy, dirty, airy. Graysmith ends up going to Vallejo, tracking down Allen at a hardware store. And he goes in. And he looks at him and Lee says, is there anything I can help you with, sir? Or something like that. And Graysmith doesn't say anything. He just kind of stares at him. And then Lee gets a really straight face and they're just both looking at each other. And then Lee gets like an angry look on his face. And then Graysmith just turns around and leaves, kind of saunters off, doesn't ask him any questions, doesn't talk to him at all. And this goes back to one line that he says one time when Chloe Savigny asks him why he's doing this and when he when it's going to be done, he says the only thing he's looking for out of all of this. I need to know who he is. I need to stand there, look him in the eye and know it's him. And when is it going to be finished? When you catch him, when you arrest him? I, I need to know who he is. I I need to uh, stand there. I need to look him in the eye. And I need to know that it's him. And that's what we get in this scene. They don't bring back that line through a flashback or narration or anything like that. But you can easily connect these two moments and know that Graysmith got exactly what he wanted out of it. He is positive that Arthur Lee Allen is the killer. Going so far as Toski putting, was it Toski or some other cop, putting uh, pictures in front of the victim from Napa. Not from Napa. No, you're right. 
This is the first one oh, from Oh, the first Lover's guy Lane. from the car. Yeah, he's just older. And here's what happened with him. Afterwards, in the hospital, he was interviewed a lot. Yeah. As soon as he got out of the hospital, he disappeared. No one could find him for decades. And they finally found him, and they interviewed him, and they showed him a lineup of pictures. And he singled out Alan. Arthur Lee Allen. He said, that's the man who shot me. So they, like, reopened the case, and they're going after Alan, and they want to question him again. And when Alan gets a call or something saying that people are looking for him, oh, the cops want to meet with you or something like that, he up and has a heart attack and dies. So this guy that we are fairly certain is actually the Zodiac Killer ended up having a heart attack because the cops were bearing down on him. And according to Gray Smith, he has not gotten a single call or letter since he died. Yeah. And Gray Smith is positive. We don't know that just because of the scene where he looks him in the eye and walks away satisfied. We know that because he said as much. Uh, obviously, he's done interviews and stuff like that since the book came out and since the movie came out. People have asked him, is this like, how positive are you? The, sure, this is the guy. He's like, I'm as positive as you could possibly be. And then he goes down and lists all the evidence. Now, it, every single bit of this evidence is circumstantial, every single bit. But there is legal precedence that you can convict somebody on circumstantial evidence if it goes beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Like, you can't realistically think that this much circumstantial evidence can build up against one person and only one person without it having actually been them. Like, luck just isn't that bad for anybody. Like, even those bad justice stories were like, oh, this just wasn't his lucky day. Like, this is dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of evidence that point to this guy. And Gray Smith goes down the list in an interview with Newsweek in 2007, around the time of the release of the movie. And he was asked a couple of questions about this. One of the questions was, are you still comfortable with the conclusion that Arthur Lee Allen, a convicted child molester who died in 1992, was the Zodiac? And he said, when I first met Dave Toskey in the summer of 76, I'd spoken to an expert at Stanford. We knew very little then about serial killers. He said, this is someone who would try to insinuate himself into the police investigation. I said to Toskey, did you get a letter from someone wanting to help? He said, I just got this one. It's from a guy in prison saying, I'm sorry I wasn't your man. I just want to help. The name was Arthur Lee Allen. His name was on the list of suspects. It turns out it rang some bells with investigators in other cities who all independently end up on Arthur Lee Allen's doorstep. There are too many good detectives who all came to the same conclusion. The interviewer says, your critics say you made the classic amateur mistake, which is to focus on a suspect and not on the evidence. He says, well... If the killer leaves a footprint and it's a wingwalker shoe that they only made 169,000 pairs and they're only sold on naval stations and his father is a naval commander, it's a size 10 and a half shoe you can only get if you're a dependent or an enlisted person. If he works across the street from the first victim, if he says two days before the first murder, I'm going to hunt people. I'm going to put a light on the end of my gun. I'm going to taunt the press. I'm going to taunt the police. I'm going to call myself Zodiac, who two days before receives a Zodiac watch. I think at some point when you have a guy who has to be a chemist, who can build electronic bombs, who knows Cypher, I don't know if you want to call any of that evidence, 
But I think if you wear the same size gloves and the same size shoe and you have a catalog in your basement that advertises a bomb disposal outfit that has a square hood, then at some point you have to say, it's probably this guy. I'm not one of those people. If they catch someone else, that's not going to bother me. But I'm satisfied it's him. Yeah, it's that's a lot of evidence. <laughs> it is. There's a line in the movie where after they see Dirty Harry, somebody kind of shouts out at Toski, you know, looks like he was able to get the killer. Toski's response is, yeah, good thing he didn't have to worry about due process. Dave, that Harry Callahan did a health job in case. Yeah, no need for due process, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people watch those types of movies. I feel like a lot of dads watch those types of movies and are like, yeah, that's the way things should go. Yeah, due process is bullshit. It only gets in the way of catching the bad guys. Yeah. And, and it's these people who watched movies like Dirty Harry. Yeah. And as frustrating as it is to watch this man slip through their fingers because of bullshit... That's the only way to protect innocent people. If it weren't for that bullshit, a lot of right. a lot more innocent people would be behind bars because I'm telling you, there are a lot of innocent people behind bars right now. Because due process wasn't followed. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they jumped to too many conclusions or they were framed or, you know, it's these sorts of things that protect people from that. It's not perfect, but it's what we have and you can't take that away. Yeah. I certainly don't want my rights stripped away. No. Lightning round, Kelsey. There's a very cute moment when we meet Jake Gyllenhaal's first son. He drops him off at school and he says, learn a lot. There will be a test tonight. Yeah, he's a really cute dad, but he's not very good at it. <laughs> I just, I, I was like, God, I wish parents were still like that. Right, yeah. I wish parents showed actually cared about yeah, in what the kid uh -huh. is learning and helped them do well in school as opposed to... Yeah, they'll do it when they do it. They'll get what they get. It's up to the teachers to do it. It's like, <laughs> we can only do so much, people. If they're in my classroom for an hour, I can give them what they need. But if no one makes sure that they actually study it at home, it's going to go in one ear and out the other. There's another video I'd recommend you watch on YouTube. It's really quite moving. It's on a channel called Film Radar, and the title is Zodiac When Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. It does a really good job of compiling a couple of those eyewitnesses and their videotaped testimony that they've given over the course of the years to documentaries and stuff like that. And it talks to the two surviving men in those uh, murder cases. It talks to the one of the women who took one of the 911 calls where the Zodiac called and confessed and said where they could find the bodies. And it compares their their testimony to what we actually get in the movie. And it's like word for word. And it goes really a long way to show that what Fincher was going for was reality here. He wasn't going for the epic. And that's why this is a movie that it meanders a lot. It goes on for two and a half hours. And the Zodiac Killer is never caught. We're told in a postscript that he dies from a heart attack before he could ever actually be caught. And that could be really frustrating. And I can understand why people wouldn't like that. But this isn't a movie about the Zodiac. This is a movie about the lives of the people that were affected by the Zodiac. In particular, Graysmith and slightly less in particular, Toski. It's not about following the Zodiac and catching the Zodiac. It's about the lives that were changed by the Zodiac. 
And so if you're going into it looking for the bad guy to get caught, like in Dirty Harry, then you're going to come out disappointed. And if you can get past that, you'll see it's a fantastic movie. Um, but watch that that video, Film Radar, Zodiac, When Truth is Stranger Than Fiction. So this is one of those instances where I am shown that my initial reaction to something would probably get me killed. It's not common. Kelsey has a lot of strong opinions on how, what she would do in that situation. And they're very strong and she will not budge. <laughs> so the scene where he attacks the couple at the picnic area. I totally accept the fact that my response would get me killed. However, as we see, and as really happened, one of them dies anyway. Right. But I think you've come to terms with the fact that if you if you die doing something, like fighting, you're comfortable with that. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. So she does come to terms with this. If a man in a black hood came up to me with a gun and said, I want your... Keys and your wallet, I'd give it. Yeah. If he said, I'm going to tie you up, that's when I would say, no, shoot me. Mm -hmm. I refuse to allow myself to go through any more pain than I need to. Yeah. Because being a horror movie fan, I am always going to be under the impression that you're going to kill me anyway. Right. You're going to kill me no matter what the fuck I do. Right. Now, again... The male survived, right? Mm -hmm. And we know for a fact that the Zodiac Killer went in intending to kill them. Yeah. Right? The hope with my response would be that they're bluffing. However, I don't give a fuck either way. Because I would refuse to allow myself to be tied up and stabbed to death. Yeah. You can either shoot me or you can walk away. I don't care about material shit. If you want to take my money, you want to take my car, fucking fine. But I'm not going to allow you to do anything to my body that I don't allow you to do. Yeah. And in, in particular to that scene, if you if you do watch that video I recommended, the guy who survived that talks about it. And he talks about how accurate that scene was and about how they show the girl getting stabbed just about as long as he could stand to look. And he turned away at that exact moment. He's like, it's it's intense. And he didn't fight. He didn't struggle because it happened too quickly to him. But she saw it happening to him. And so she's fighting and struggling while she's getting stabbed, therefore getting stabbed all over the place. And those stab wounds ended up killing her. You know, to be perfectly frank, what, what they've captured on the film that you see when, when Cecilia is being stabbed, that's the flash I saw happening. And I had to look away. And about the time you would look away, that's when that piece ends in the, in the film. It's, it's, a, it's an eerie um, reproduction of what happened in my vision. I, I, I couldn't have scripted it better. It's unfortunate. A slight little note. It recreates old school production logos from Paramount and Warner Brothers, but they're not exact. Obviously, they're going to have features that have to do with the fact that these companies are completely different than they were that long ago. Like the Warner Brothers logo wasn't a shield that year and, and stuff like that. But I thought that was pretty neat. They did a really good job of making that look old fashioned. At one point in the story, Robert Downey Jr.'s character gets a threatening letter. He receives that threatening letter for probably many reasons, but one that they bring up twice in the film is that he called him a latent homosexual in his article. Yeah. 
remind you of anything? It does. <laughs> Manhunter and Red Dragon, yeah. Yes, and when you consider the fact that the Zodiac thing happened in the early 70s, and when you consider the fact that Harris wrote Red Dragon in the late 70s, yeah. and the reason that Red Dragon attacks... The reporter the specifically reporter is because he he, he called him a homosexual. Published that he that yeah. Uh-huh. So little connections, little connections. You should really go back and listen to our double feature on Manhunter and Red Dragon if you haven't already. And it's great. Actor, we have an actor that was Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, Brian Cox. Yes, he plays the attorney in this, <laughs> and uh, and Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Can we also talk about how Hurdy Gurdy Man is a really fucking awesome and creepy song? Go for it. Hurdy Gurdy Man is a really awesome and creepy song. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially when you find out what a Hurdy Gurdy Man is. Like, I just thought, I thought it was supposed to be taken ironically. And then you find out that it's a real thing. Yeah, so a Hurdy Gurdy, um, listen, if, if you played Sea of Thieves recently, you can actually play a Hurdy Gurdy in it. <gasps> Um, basically it looks like a guitar, but it's more akin to a violin and it has a hand crank on the side of it. And the hand crank spins a wheel on the inside, which rubs along the strings like a violin bow would, and it plays music that way. So you do the notes on your left hand and you crank it with your right hand and it creates, it almost sounds like bagpipes, but with strings instead of wind. We didn't even talk about Ioni Sky. Ioni Sky has a cameo. She's not even fucking credited. Uh, Kelsey called it like way before. Like I knew Ioni Sky was in the movie because I knew her dad, I want to say, is the guy who performed Hurdy Gurdy Man, which is an interesting little anecdote. But I, I, that's how I knew she was in the movie already. But her face is shrouded in shadows at the beginning. And Kelsey's like, is that Ioni Sky? <laughs> Care to tell us how you know Ioni Sky so well? Well, here's the thing. I've seen this movie. This is probably my fourth time watching really? it. Probably. Wow. This is only my third time. I think it's my fourth time. I've never realized it was her until this time. I know her very well because I absolutely love Say Anything. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Also, Anthony Kiedis dated her. When she was like yes. 16 or Tell something. Tell people who that is in case they don't know. Anthony Kiedis is the lead singer to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the reason I realized it was her this time, because of course I'm paying way more attention this time because I'm taking notes, right? Yeah. And I was like, there's something weird about her mouth. It's the same weird thing about her mouth that you know about Ioni Sky. Yes. <laughs> I was like, why is her mouth, and why does she make that breathing sound? Oh, my God, it's Ioni's guy. But we didn't even say what happened to her. Okay, so she is supposedly the potential victim to the Zodiac, but we don't know that. She gets she uh, gets flagged to the side of the road by another driver saying that her tire was loose and that he offered to tighten it for her. What's implied is that he actually loosened it. And so when she continues to drive, the tire falls off and the guy turns around and comes back and, oh, I guess it was worse than I thought. I'll take you to a station. And they end up driving past the station and she's there holding her baby. The guy's like, I didn't know you had a baby. And she's like, is there a problem? He's like, no, it's okay. 
And as she's trying to strike up a conversation, it's like, um, I think you passed a station. It was closed, you know? And then she's trying to continue, like, get comfortable with this person. And he's like, I'm going to throw your baby out the window before I shoot you in the head or whatever it is that he says. And then she gets this terrified look on her face. And we find out that she jumped out of the car with the baby in her arms and ended up saving the both of them because he sped off instead of going back and looking for her. Well, no, he does go back. No, she hides the baby in case he comes back. But, but he, he goes back and lights the car on fire. Oh, yeah. He goes back to the original That's car how we that know it really happened. Right. We yeah. don't just have some cra- – well, I mean, like, she could be a crazy lady <laughs> that ran off and, th- like, put her car on fire. Yeah, but-, but we don't know if it was the Zodiac or not, really. Right. Okay. Have we, have we said why – it's so hard to tell what the Zodiac did and what he didn't do. Did we talk about that? We didn't. Uh, we, well, we mentioned it briefly, but he claimed a lot more crimes that we know for a fact he didn't do. We don't know for a fact. We just know that he didn't have any – he didn't give any information that was not – Right, in but the there are other papers. crimes that they – that he claimed credit for that – somebody else was convicted for or something like that. Oh. In addition to that, yeah, that when he gave hints about facts about the crimes, it's all stuff that was published before. And he usually, the ones they can link to him, includes facts intentionally, very specifically includes facts that the that the cops did not publish to prove that it's him. And then in these cases that he claims it, He's never able to prove it. So all we know for a fact that was a Zodiac was the first couple, which we never see. Um, The woman from the second couple, the first one that we see that gets shot in the car. The woman from the third couple at the lake in Napa and the cab driver. That's five. Mm -hmm. Five murders is all we know for sure that he did. Um, But he claimed credit for like a dozen of them. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? I know it didn't do very well. Commercially, you mean? Yes. Yeah, it seemed like it came out and, like, the public didn't think anything of it. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I was bored out of my mind. It was way too long. Mm -hmm. It didn't grab me. I'm not sure why, because I, I now really enjoy it. Yeah. I think I just didn't understand the movie I was walking into. Right. That's a big problem with movies. Movies can get absolutely annihilated by critics and audiences if they are purported to be something that they're not. I don't understand why people do that. Because they're more interested in the in selling tickets than they are in the movie. Satisfying their satisfying customers. customers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very short-sighted. Yes, it is. And and thankfully, we've moved away from that more in recent years than it used to be in the early days of cinema, mm-hmm. but it still happens. Yeah. So what do you think? I would guess 73. On Metacritic, it got a 78. That's the average rating of, of all the reviews on Metacritic. The percentage of reviews that are positive in nature which is the Rotten Tomatoes score, 90%. Ha! Wow. The consensus is a quiet, dialogue-driven thriller that delivers with scene after scene of gut-wrenching anxiety. David Fincher also spends more time illustrating nuances of his characters and recreating the mood of the 70s than he does on gory details of murder. I think that's very true. 
Overrated or underrated? With the 90 or the 78? Let's go with the 90. Probably a little overrated. What would you give it? Probably give it like an 85. I was thinking 97. Wow. That's a big difference between you and I. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the character of Fincher's direction that I absolutely love. I'm just in love. And I think that this is more masterfully made than Seven was. But Seven is much more interesting in content, which is why I gave that 100. This is not quite there. I think it is too long. Way too long. Um, I, okay, sorry. I, maybe I shouldn't say too long. It is long. It's just as long as it needs to be, but that is a length that can get really tiresome. I said it earlier. He wasn't interested in making it a cinematic experience. Right, yeah. He's interested in making it a, an experience. Right. He, Like you said, he wants to immerse you in what this whole situation felt like. Right. And that's fascinating and interesting and enjoyable, but I am not watching a movie. Yeah. I'm being pulled into something that really happened. And I really enjoy that about it. But it also means that you don't get closure at the end. Yeah. The only person who gets any sort of closure that they're satisfied with really is Graysmith. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I'll just say it. I fully believe it was Arthur Lee Allen based on everything that I've read, everything yeah. that I've seen. But the movie doesn't make any decision. Right. Yeah. It just shows that Graysmith is satisfied because he said what he wanted to do was look him in the eye and know that he was the killer. And we see that happen. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, the fact of the matter is, since we don't know for certain it was him, the movie doesn't come down on either side. It just shows Graysmith, which reinforces the idea that this is Graysmith's story. He's our hero. It's about him. It's not about finding out who the Zodiac is. It's about following Graysmith's crusade. And we know because he said outright in one line, in one scene, what his goal was. And we see him achieve that goal. The problem is, I think for most people, and understandably so, they will miss that we're told what the goal is. They will miss that part. And they will not fully understand what that goal is. And they'll think, we're supposed to find out who the Zodiac is. This movie's going to tell us who it thinks the Zodiac is. And no, you don't get any of that. Yeah, and... I can understand why that would be frustrating. Yeah. Had I gone into it knowing what I was going to watch, I probably would have enjoyed it a million times more in the theater. But in the theater, I was just like, are you kidding me? Another dead end. I am so bored. What is yeah. going on? <laughs> because I had no idea what he wanted me to get out of it. Right. Plus, it has Jake Gyllenhaal. And we both really love Jake Gyllenhaal. Yes. Love Jake Gyllenhaal. He's pretty awesome. Not as pretty as Brad Pitt. Oh, but, I think he's uh, much prettier. But he's really, really cool. I like him a lot. Kelsey is a big Donnie Darko fan, and that should tell you something about her. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, <laughs> Donnie Darko fans are Donnie Darko fans, and you are one of them. <laughs> hey, fans. Tweet us, comment, whatever. If you think Donnie Darko should be considered a horror movie. And put on our list. I say no. Kelsey says yes. It's a psychological horror movie. Sure. 
Let us know, fans. You, you pair it with a good enough movie and we'll see. Okay. All right. That was 2007's Zodiac, and that completes our David Fincher episode. God, that was awesome. This Thank was a you. good week. Thank you very much, Kelsey. Good movies. What are we watching next week? Next week, a double feature. We are in prom season, people. Oh, yeah. Seasonal horror. It's Carrie time. Yes. All right. So basically just watch the first Carrie because you don't need to watch the second. You it's don't. just the same movie over again. But not nearly as good. <laughs> I did not think nearly as poorly of it as Kelsey did. But that's because she's a huge Carrie fan. I am an enormous Carrie fan. I've read the book. This is a movie that me and my mom watched when I was like, you know, five. <laughs> um, and I've read the book and I've seen the musical, which is not good. <laughs> Don't see it. <laughs> All right. Next week, it's a carry double feature. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com where you can browse all of our episodes and a list of every movie we have ever had on the show. You can leave a comment there to share your thoughts on the movies or recommend one or two of us to cover in a future episode. You can also email us at podcemetery at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at podcemetery. I'll add comments that we think of after the mics are off. And Kelsey will sometimes get trashed and live tweet a random horror movie, which she hasn't done in a while. So you need to do that. What was the last one you did? It's hard to remember. They're always on Netflix. It's always random horror movies I find on Netflix when Chris is out or busy and I'm bored out of my mind. And we don't, like, we know we're not ever going to cover it on the show or maybe we will in the future. We have not had a lot of free time, dear listeners. <laughs> yeah. Our lives have been incredibly busy. It's been it's been rather difficult to keep up with this. So that's why I have not done that in a long time. And being a teacher, this is the final weeks of school, so you probably won't see it for a while. But in the summertime. In the summertime. There will be lots. Yes. Lots of live tweeting. <laughs> I have to get up and go to work in the morning, and Kelsey does not. So... <laughs> Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Kelsey, any parting words of wisdom to share with the audience? Long is the way, and hard, that out of hell leads up to light. Just then when I heard a good man come singing songs of love. Then when I heard a good man come singing songs of love. All righty then. What's that from, Kels? Can you name what that's from? Ace Ventura. Pet Detective. Get it right. This week, 1995's Seven, and I don't remember when Zodiac came out. 2007. 2007's Zodiac. Fuck, I thought I grabbed this info. Shit. They show you that he cuts off his fingertips. His fingerprints. Is there a difference? His fingertips is this. Finger. You would have to lop off his fingertips. <laughs> Bullshit. Did I use egregious correctly? Sure. Okay. Maybe 
anachronistic, anachronistic, not anachronistic. It may be, what's the word I'm looking for? May not be true. Apocryphal. All right. Great. Kelsey. Do you agree or disagree or think I'm weird or crazy? I I think we should just sit on that one. I think that's a good place to end. No, I think that, that that's a great ending to our conversation, unless you have something else to talk about. I don't. Okay. I just. No, I mean, I'm, I would just I would just muddy the waters of what you're saying. Like, legitimately, I think your statement is a good place to is a nice button on it. Okay. 2007. 2007. 2007s. I feel like I said 2013 earlier, so I want to get some clean 2007s before. I unplug it from the mic. Nice. Kelsey. Mm. It's just the two cent. (laughs) Please, Eddie. Uh, Oh, what's in the box?